Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures and Advising Podcast. If you don't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and also follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. That's right, TikTok at Advising Podcast. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Adventures in Advising. It's our 14th episode of 2021 and we have three great guests joining us. Yep, episode 39 overall and we are flying through summer. So a few episodes ago, we had Miguel Jaramillo from Rio Rancho Public Schools on the podcast to talk about TikTok. Just wanted to shout out Miguel because just recently the Albuquerque Journal wrote an article about him titled Rio Rancho Teacher Utilizing TikTok to Reach Music Students Around the World. It's a nice article highlighting the power of social media and Miguel's ability to teach and empower his students. A link to this article is in the show notes. Go check it out. Also on the shout out, Afia Thomas, who said about the podcast, it is refreshing and informative to hear from advisors in other regions. And Jessica Davis, who said, doing a great job. Love that you have people from all over that we can learn from. Thanks to Christina Bowles for the shout out on Twitter. Christina tweeted, catching up on adventures and advising on this rainy Friday and being reminded of how much I love my Nakata family. First up, we have Dr. Banks Blair from University of Lynchburg. Our next guest is Dr. Banks Blair, who is the Executive Director of the Academic Achievement Center at the University of Lynchburg, a small private institution in Central Virginia that prides itself on providing transformative experiences for its students. Prior to becoming a proud Lynchburg Hornet, Banks was the Associate Director of the University Studies Program and an Assistant Director of Academic Advising Initiatives at Virginia Tech. Banks started as an academic at Oregon State University in the College of Forestry and also had a stint as a first-year experience advisor at Boise State University. Banks has been in higher education for 13 years and found his calling advising college students. He's worked in centralized and decentralized advising environments during his career and in recent years found a deep interest in advisor training and development. Banks will be the next chair of the Advisor Training and Development Advising Community and is ultimately focused on helping students and advisors alike work toward their highest potential. Banks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for that that wonderful introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah, really interesting introduction, and we will have plenty to to delve into. But um, I, I know we were talking just beforehand that you have listened to the podcast, so you know the question that's coming, uh, which Kevin D- Thomas dubbed the origin story. Uh, and I suppose you, yours is interesting because you you almost you had a career before moving into to higher ed. So just interested in in how you ended up in um, in higher ed and and where you are now, Banks. Well, thanks, Colm. Um, so, it, it, you know, going back, I went into the military after I was 27 years old when I went into the military. I went into the army, and I had aspirations to to join special forces and do all sorts of great things there. And ended up getting hurt and was medically retired after four years. And when I was trying to find a job, I had uh, my wife was was pregnant with our our what now would have been our first our first child and I was looking for a, a job and 
the Oregon State University, their human resources office, they were the only folks that would give me a, they gave me a second round interview and invited me back for an interview for whatever reason. And so I started out there in 2008, in July of 2008. So it's coming up on, on I guess, 13 full years here. Um, so I started out in human resources. I did that for three years and was in the College of Forestry Human Resources office when I realized that I, I saw all these folks working with students and student employment and recruiting faculty members to, to teach classes. And I decided I wanted to work with students too. And at the time I was actually still, I was actually a student at Oregon State. I, was, I went back to school for a second degree in, in natural resource management and got into advising when my advisor, Marge Victor, um, invited me to apply for her position. And, and serendipitously I got it. I didn't have any formal academic advising experience. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the start of it. And I just kind of, I, I took the ball and, and ran with it as much as I could. It's not something I ever planned on, on doing with my life. This is not a, a career trajectory I ever envisioned. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, kind of same thing. We did not grow up thinking, yeah, I want to go into academic advising. Kind of things just fell into place. And and that's kind of a nice thing about, about that journey. Now, flash forward to now, you're at University of Lynchburg. So for those who uh, want to know more about your institution, uh, what can you tell them? And also, what does your role entail at your institution? Well, so I am, uh, I'm still pretty green here at University of Lynchburg. I'm, I think I'm on week maybe seven or eight. So, uh, well, we're, we're, what I can say is we're a small liberal arts institution. We have excellent business, health sciences, and um, just gen, like general liberal arts programs. But we're, we've got about, I'd say about 2,000 undergraduate students, and we really pride ourselves on, on offering those students a, a transformative experience. This is a place that, that changes students' lives and someplace that they, they keep coming back to year after year and place that they don't ever forget. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to be here. In my current position, um, I'm the executive director of the Academic Achievement Center. And what that means is I work with a team of, of directors who oversee first first year programs, first year initiatives, which includes first year academic advising and a first year experience program with all the events and co-curricular opportunities for students. We have a second year initiative, second year programs, which is second year advising, as well as commuter student and adult student access uh, services. So access is our adult student advising service, I guess, where, so we have a number of uh, opportunities there for, for students to get involved. We also have supplemental instruction. So we have the peer assisted supplemental instruction sessions throughout the year. So those are essentially tutoring and uh, for classes that are typically high DF have high, high DFW rates. So for us, it's accounting, chemistry, some biology classes and, and some, several others. And then we also have the Center for Accessibility and Dis Disability Resources. So students coming in from high school that might have, might have had 504 plans or IEPs, they, they can come through us if they, they need learning accommodations and, and we will take a very student-centered approach to those programs and those opportunities for them. So it's a lot of stuff, and I'm pretty new. So I'm, I ask a lot of questions of the people who have been here, who have been here for a while, and uh, really lean on them. And they've, they, we've got a great team, and I'm just very fortunate to be here. 
Well, you're on a podcast where we ask a lot of questions, so we definitely like questions. So we'd encourage you to keep uh, keep asking those. And I, I think the fact that you have that second year programming will will stand to you this year in in particular, obviously with the the cohorts who you know who had a first year off you know, off campus co- coming in. And we've we've spoken to to some people on the podcast recently about that. But one of the things I, as I was kind of preparing for for this and, and looking at your uh, CV, as we would say in, in Ireland, where it's like, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. There was lots of stuff coming up. But your your uh, doctoral thesis um, in, in terms of, I think, the, the title is separate from everybody else, interpreting the lived experiences of post 9-11 veterans at a senior military college. I started reading it as somebody with no military background, but an interest. But it was it was fascinating. Can can you talk to to listeners a little bit about like you know I suppose that that uh, thesis and a little bit about maybe some of your findings uh, as, in in this constrained environment that we have. But I think it would be really interesting to hear. Absolutely, Colin. Well, I think. Uh... You and I think maybe one other person have ever read any of that. Maybe I'm hoping that my uh, my my dissertation committee actually read it too. But no, thank you. Um, yeah, so I did. I, I studied uh, the lived experiences. So I'm a qualitative researcher by by training. Um, I really in, enjoy learning or hearing and hearing people's stories and learning more about their experiences and and trying to find ways to connect with them. I think that's why I'm so drawn to, to academic advising and have been over the years. So I, uh, I think I had a group of about 11 or 12 student veterans that, that volunteered to, to spend um, an hour to, to a couple hours with me over the course of a semester at, at one of our senior military colleges. So senior military colleges, there are only six of them in the United States, and there are only two large public senior military colleges. Those are schools that were set up, uh, essentially set up by the 1862 Morrill Land Grant Act, which established in a reserve officer training corps, what we know as ROTC, and also have civilian, a civilian corps of cadets, so a leader, a civilian leadership training program. And so I was curious, as a, as a, as an Army veteran, as a U.S. Army veteran working at a senior military college, I was curious what the experiences were of our student veterans, those who had served and uh, worn the uniform. And so I designed a study around that and, and had a pretty robust question list. And what I found was that not all veterans are broken. There's also often a, a stigma attached to, to being a veteran. People often assume that they all have PTSD and that they're all you know, ready to fly off the handle at a moment's notice, but that's, that's definitely not the case. Um, there's also a misconception that a lot of veterans struggle in higher ed. They might struggle socially or struggle uh, personally to integrate with maybe younger, a younger student population or, or some of the services on campus. But academically, student veterans are quite strong in the classroom and, and often outperform their, their non-veteran peers. Uh, I also found um, that many of them didn't didn't really uh, most of them at least didn't didn't appreciate being around a civilian corps of cadets that were wearing a uniform all the time and in this kind of third space they were in this third space between not being fully veteran and not or not being fully military and not being fully civilian so there was that that interesting um 
kind of that liminal space where they existed. But many of them, again, weren't, weren't too keen on, on being around um, what some of them described as toy soldiers wearing a, a cadet uniform. So um, I, I took that for what it was. Uh, when I was the entering college student, I wouldn't have had the discipline or uh, mindset to to have been in a, in a corps of cadets that had military-like training and, and expectations. So I, I I respect I respect students that young students that are willing to, to go into the either ROTC or a corps of cadets. So. Yeah, that's kind of some of what I studied, and I, there's still a lot of work to be done um, to help student veterans feel like they belong and that they matter, and some of that's through scholarship and, and really scholarships and um, helping them find co-curricular activities that really help them help get them job ready, so undergraduate research or internships, things along those lines, so that's some of what I found. Yeah, and it's glad that you're mentioning like some of those misconceptions. Um... Because yeah, a lot of advisors or even students and you know people at these institutions listening to this might be like, oh, that's good to know. So that way they can better help their students. And I think it's also something too where a lot of institutions, uh, sense of belonging has been an important one. I know for Cal San Bernardino and a lot of other institutions. And I know they are also are trying to focus on specific student populations. And a lot of times the uh, military veterans and students are ones that they also want to make sure that everyone has that sense of belonging. Now, You've done a lot of things within uh, Nakata uh, through your time um, at, in advising. And one of the things is you're going to be presenting um, a presentation. And I believe you might have presented this already, but we'll be presenting at the Ohio Conference. Uh, can you talk more about your presentation as well as the inspiration behind it? Absolutely. So thanks, Matt. So I did. I, I presented. Uh, so it's, the title of my presentation was Hard Work with a Full Heart on Being a Quiet professional advisor, so quiet in parentheses. Um, I presented this at the Nakata Region 1 and 2 combined virtual conference uh, this past spring. Um, it was It's a concept I've kind of bounced around or kind of thought about for a while in, in advising. It's something I want to eventually turn into something like an Academic Advising Today article. Um, so quiet... Uh, Quiet professionals, at least, so that's a term that, that has military and kind of service firefighting and, and police and, and law enforcement connotations, but it's specifically quiet professionals were, were special forces operators, Green Berets, and it's a, a kind of a mindset and a, an ethic that's prevalent through special operations in the military. I, I was fortunate to I didn't make it into special forces, which was my goal. I got hurt and, and did some time in the in the big army, and then made it back into special operations through uh, psychological operations, where I got to be around a great a bunch of great individuals and jump out of airplanes and learn another language and do all sorts of stuff before I got hurt again and then retired. But quiet professionalism is this. It's 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 this mindset where you're you're putting the mission first. You're you're doing the hard work, you're grinding through the work, um, not just for yourself, but for the, the betterment of your team, the people around you, and, and, and the, ultimately the mission that you're trying to accomplish. So it's something I've thought a lot about over the years and how it could be adapted into something that helps advisors develop. Because over the, over the most, at least past three years, I've had a gotten a lot of experience working in advisor development, training and development, whether it's through Nakata or at my previous institution at Virginia Tech. I had a great opportunity there. Um, 
from Dr. Kim Smith. And so I just kind of, I, I, I'd never, I, I made it into the ELP class, the 2019-2021 Emerging Leaders Program. And one of the things we, we set goals. So one of the goals that I set for myself was to present, do a solo presentation. I'd only done group presentations or, or presenting with somebody else. So I decided that I was going to finally put something together and uh, was fortunate a, a little bit before I had to have all that turned in. I found a, I found a series of essays from a former Coast Guard, from a Coast Guard veteran named Rob Shaw, who operates this Mountain Tactical Institute. It's a, a tactical in, athlete in, uh, training institute in, in Wyoming, and he gets firefighters, wildland firefighters, um, future military operators, all sorts of people. People are just going out on, on big hunting trips. He gets them physically ready, physically and mentally prepared to go out and do that hard work. And he penned this this series of essays on quiet professionalism, and I was able to take what he what he used and and kind of flesh it out more into how it applies to advising. So yeah, there's some there's some key tenets of, of quiet professionalism that, that are important to note. The first one is is always placing the mission first and that mission can be contextual. Sometimes it's the student sitting in front of you and, and helping them, whether it's find classes or adjust to college or, or change their major or supporting your team that's you know that's working through orientation we're just coming off of our orientation season so whatever we whatever at least in my role whatever i had to do to help the team accomplish our mission which was give our students a great orientation experience i was willing to do the second tenet is hard work with a full heart so there are days when you don't want to do the work you don't want to get up and grind and you don't want to get after it but you do it because you know that one way ultimately you love it but you know that it's going to help the person beside you on your right or your left um, a third tenet is understanding the difference between experience and wisdom so lots of people have experience i have a lot of experience but i don't feel like i always have a lot of wisdom wisdom is that um that sage-like advice that you can get from people people have seen things and experienced things and have been able to step back sometimes and and give you a different perspective and give you a different way to look at things. Um, number four, a tenet, one of the, the fourth tenet is knowing what to do is, is easy and actually doing it is hard. So oftentimes we know what we need to do or students need to do, but being able to um, sometimes articulate it or help them find a, a clear path to where they need to be is hard. And the same with us as advisors in our careers. Lots of advisors I've talked with aspire to to get into leadership positions and think just because they've gotten you know x number of years under their belt that they're that they're owed or they're due. I shouldn't say lots of them, but some. Um, that's not fair. Um, or in just life in general, maybe not even advisors, but some folks feel like if after they have years of experience that they're owed a promotion or the next level. But really, it, it comes to doing the hard work to get. You get where you need to be. Um, continuous professional learning is, a, is one of the tenets as well. So constantly striving to get better, whether it's reading books, attending Nakata conferences for advisors um, or other, you know, there are also plenty of other great organizations, ACPA and NASPA and so on. Um, doing your work with dignity. That's one of the other tenets. So you, again, like pride in, pride in the work you do. Sometimes it's just, it's, it's just reading transcripts and articulating, just doing great plans or, you know, 
graduation plans for students, or it could be you know bigger projects. Um, number seven and one like that that was number six, but like one of the the seventh tenet is is embrace your embrace the suck. And I've had to explain that. I did that during my presentation because I, I saw the eyes on the Zoom screen of like, ooh, what does embrace the suck mean? Well, that's that's again, that's kind of doing your work with dignity, even when you, you know that the avalanche is like for us, we we're getting ready to roll out a new student information system in early July. And it's not it's not all the way there. And so we know the avalanche is coming down the mountain. And there's nothing we can do to stop it, but we've got to either, you know, we've got to figure out how to go over it, go through it, or go around it. And so, and just embracing that, we're all in it together, and we're we're focused on what we need to do to help the students. So we're just kind of embracing that that shared suck. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be always that much fun, but we're in it together. And then the last one is this gratitude. So like the last tenet of, of this quiet professional mindset is is gratitude, being grateful for the people that you work with. I'm very grateful for the, the team I get to lead right now. Um, a lot of times I feel like they're leading me since I'm so new and I'm, I'm just embracing that, but I'm grateful for the work they do for our students and the, the work they do for, for the rest of us. So, yeah, so that's kind of what quiet professionalism is. And um, I will be presenting it at the, at the Cincinnati conference, the, the 21, 2021 annual conference. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting to do it in person this time. So, yeah, I hope uh, if anyone is there and they see that and like to attend, I'd, I'd love to have you there and, and ask some questions. One thing I, do, I will do the, during the presentation is I've got a set of reflections for advisors to uh, kind of think about how they could fit some of these aspects into their, their advising practice as well. So, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. I think you've done a great job of whetting the appetite of our listeners uh, and getting them interested. I think we're referring to us all as students because that desire to to continuously learn is there as well. Um, Now, you are certainly a a goal setter and somebody who goes after their goals, because one of the other goals you set for yourself in the ELP um, was to run for chair of the advisor training and development community. Um, and you did that and, and you will be the, the incoming uh, chair or you are now the incoming chair. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, that that particular, I know you're involved in a number of different communities, but maybe we could start with the advisor training and development community. Absolutely. So thanks, Colm. So I, I was invited, I, I met Gavin Farber, who's our current chair. He's at Temple University. He's a fantastic person and, and excellent at what he does. Uh, both as an advisor and a Nakata representative, but I met him at the in the conference at the conference in Louisville, and I don't know if he I don't I don't think I'd ever met him before, but he invited me somehow. We we got talking. And he ended up inviting me to be on the steering committee for the advisor training and development um, advising community, and it's a big we have a big steering committee. I want to say it's fifteen to twenty people. If I'm and I might be under underselling it there. 
but what I've seen from that community, and I'm also I'm a steering on a steering committee for another community, but what I've seen from the ATD is it's there's not a lot of lip service. I mean, we, we get together and we talk and we, we connect, but we're a group of a, a community that, that gets things done. Um, so kind of going back to that mission first and doing, you know, doing that hard work, we, there have been, especially during COVID, we've had uh, several voices from the field, kind of webinars and Q and A panels. We've, we've done as much as we can and collaborated with as many communities as we can to just support the advising community because training and development, that's a pretty broad reaching concept. There are all sorts of ways to develop as, a, as an advisor. And so we've just been trying to lean on each other and, and lean on the voice of, you know, the voice from our broader Nakata community to, to come up with ideas and to, to collaborate. And I think we've been able to help a lot of people contextualize and frame some of the issues and some of the inequities that have surfaced as a result of the COVID pandemic. So and as we're all kind of we're I'm fully back on campus now, my my whole team, my whole office is back on campus, um, save just a couple, except for a couple of people who have some conditions that they need to still be off campus. But I think there are a lot of a lot of individuals that are that would benefit from just ongoing development as, as a form of self-care and adjusting to our to our next normal. Um, can't go back to the way things were, but whatever our next normal is going to be as a result of the COVID pandemic. So, yeah, and I'm, I and part of that too, um, part of our my interest in development. I I was all similarly just before the the Louisville con, uh, conference in twenty. I guess it was twenty nineteen. I don't know if I said twenty twenty, but it was twenty nineteen. Um, I met Casey Gregerson and Jake Rudy, both from the University of Minnesota, who were foundational members and Casey's the the chair of the advisor well-being and retention community and I was invited to to be a part of that steering committee because advisor wellness and ultimately retention goes hand in hand with training and development and that's something that I was I I appreciate the advising community so much I'm really drawn to those because they often give us kind of boots on the ground knowledge and information that we can adapt and take back to our to our practices on our campuses some of the broader some of the higher up Nakata positions I think tend to focus more on what can be done for the organization which is fantastic but um, being kind of well not kind of but being action oriented and, and mission driven I, I wanted something that if I'm going to spend this time I really want to be able to bring it back and whether I use it for my practice or bring that information to to the to the rest of the folks that I'm working with or potentially serving on our campus. So that's that's what I think what's really powerful to me about being the incoming chair for the advisor training and development community is really having a hand in that. Gavin has has established uh, I've got some big shoes to fill. I'll say it that way. Gavin has done a, a phenomenal job. Um, I don't know much otherwise. I don't know about leading an advising community, but watching Gavin and, and the way he is from his organization skills to the way he, he connects and collaborates with other groups. I've, I've, I've learned quite a bit and I'm looking forward to trying to, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, carry the, carry the torch, keep it going. Yeah. I always look at it as, you know, every chair that comes in is just going to build upon the next and it's just going to keep making it better and better and better. And as the incoming uh, chair, yeah, as this approaches it to October, are there 
any goals or ideas that you're thinking about right now of wanting to accomplish with the steering committee and the rest of the members of ATD? Well, I, I, I really want to see what we can do to move the dial, whether it's collaborating with the well-being and retention community, um, but just finding accessible resources, finding ways to offer training. Well, I guess it would be more development, less training. Um, development opportunities that are have a high ROI, so high return on investment in terms of time. I know a lot of budgets have probably been slashed with with things shifting to COVID, so the money may not may or may not be there for folks to go to, you know, go off, you know, whether it's traveling across the country or just a, a couple hours away to an annual conference or a regional conference. So trying to find ways that we can bring quality development opportunities or continue to because we've been doing that but continue to bring quality development opportunities virtual and virtually so quality virtual development development opportunities um and and if we can find ways to engage people in person whether it's you know help support or, or find avenues for maybe drive-in conferences some of those lower time commitment lower cost opportunities for for advisors We'll do what we can to do that. I'm, I, I, I guess I've uh, I've been so focused on trying to adjust to this new position. I, I haven't had the bandwidth, the mental bandwidth, to really dive in and set some goals there. I'll be meeting with Gavin this summer, though, and he's been kind of looping me in on some emails and some correspondence to kind of get me, help me overcome that inertia and, and get going. So. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be fun. The groundwork is being being laid, and uh, I, I'm excited to to see uh, what what you will build. I think one of the things that that's really interesting, Banks. I mean, you, you the the way in which kind of you you outlined the the quiet professional advisor that that philosophy. I think uh, listeners will be able to take a lot away, and, and even in terms of what you've been talking about with the the advising communities. But um, one of the things that maybe uh, we could also ask you about, you have worked at, I suppose, a number of different institutions and moving. And I suppose even when we talk about retention, I suppose it's about retaining advisors within the field. But part of it is is going to mean that, you know, uh, life within higher ed, people change institutions, but change can be difficult and change can sometimes be be scary in making that that move. So I suppose as somebody who who has experience, who is a, a you know, a leader in the field, just interested in, in your thoughts on, you know, changing institutions, any insights you might offer to, to listeners? Absolutely. Thanks, Colin. So this University of Lynchburg is the fourth institution I've worked where I've worked in that I've worked at in 13 years. Uh, first, so 2008 to 2015, I was at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. And three years in HR and then four years in academic advising. So October, 2011 to October, 2015. And I got to work with Tarina and Autumn, Marge, uh, Lori, Nicole, Clay. I got to work with this whole great team in the College of Forestry there. And that's really like, that's where I cut my teeth as an advisor. That's where I learned. And I mean, I can't forget Connie and, and Paul, but all these people that, that are still 
like I carry them with me everywhere I go. They're they're part of me, and so it's it's it was hard to leave there in 2015, um, but I I left there in 2015 to take a take a position as a first year experience advisor at Boise State University. I was at a point where I'd finished I. I it started when I finished my degree in natural resources and I was actually advising natural resources students. So I was advising for the program that I graduated from when I got out of the army. Um, I felt like I kind of needed to strike out on my own, I guess. Folks knew me in that program from the time I was a student and then I'd become an advisor. I kind of feel like I wanted to kind of go out and make my own way. And so I had saw this opportunity, but I still wanted my family. I still wanted to be near the in the Pacific Northwest so I had this opportunity to go and work at, at Boise State and I'd never worked in this I'd only been in College of Forestry in a decentralized advising model and working with students from you know, matriculation all the way through graduation in some cases and got to Boise State and was in a, a centralized advising unit so it's the, the academic the advising and academic success center there now and again got to work with some fantastic individuals there, um, Dr. Tomas Baiza, who was has been was super super influential and kind of helped me shape a lot of the ways that I look at advising leadership. Um, Dr. Karina Smith, and just so again some great folks. But I got to experience things that way, and I I think that's and I had I, I left to go eventually go back and do a second tour of duty, second stint if you will at Oregon State. But at, at Boise State is where I really grew. As an advising professional, I got to be an instructor. I got to design courses. I got to be an academic coach. I worked on an ac- a, a monthly newsletter that went out, to kind of giving people on campus just news about academic advising broadly and kind of in higher ed, but also what was going on at Boise State. And it was just a great place. Um, and and got an opportunity to go back to to Oregon State and and then found my way back east. I grew up in Virginia and moving back to Virginia and, and starting at Virginia Tech was a way to, for us to be closer to, to my side of the family. My wife's family is in the Pacific Northwest. So, um, and again, I, I grew a lot at Virginia Tech. I just got to really dive into advisor, kind of cross-campus advising initiatives and advisor development and scaling up, thinking about how I, I could make an impact across campus rather than just in a college. And, and all of those moves they were like kind of going back to your original question. They were, it was scary. I, I would, I'd be lying if I wasn't nervous and scary through all of that, going new places where a couple at least Boise state, I didn't really know anybody. I didn't know a single person there. I'd never, I'd been to, in the city for like two days and my wife got to go out there and find a house for us on a couple of days. So we only had about four days total in the town by the time we got there. And we have two young kids we had two young kids as well and still do. Um, so it's hard. It's really hard to adjust to new campus cultures, campus climates. Um, I, I'm seeing that now um, at, at the institution I'm at, where I've only been at large public institutions, and now I'm at a small private liberal arts focus. And, and two of those first three, or two of those first three, were land grant institutions. So with land grant institutions, you've got a lot of um, engineering, ag, a lot of the the hard hard sciences, lab sciences, I shouldn't say hard sciences, but um, so it's a different environment here, different culture, and the people are still the same, or I mean, not the same, but like, they're all similar, you know, you find different 
different pockets of, of individuals, but most people are student focused and really care about the community and the work that they're doing. So that if you can find those those pockets of people, I think if you switch an institution, because sometimes you have to do that to, to get ahead. I've I've had to work long and hard to get to this position. I've had to go back to school and, and get more education than I ever thought I wanted to. But now I'm here and, and I've got work to do to, to, to take care of the team that I'm, that I'm leading now. My, my role has shifted from focusing just on the students, my caseload. Now my caseload are, are the, my team members that I'm, that I'm leading. So I, I take that pretty seriously. And I'm, again, I'm still trying to figure out which end is up in, in week eight because it's been it's like trying to take a small sip of water from a fire hose because there's constant information coming at me. But um, I'm excited for the challenge. I think that's that's part of it too. If you're up for a challenge, changing campuses can be a great thing. As long as you know, as long as you can kind of figure out what you're getting into ahead of time, that can be it can be an exciting time. Very exciting. It's almost like a fresh start sometimes. You can't you can't get rid of you can't you know you, you still take your past with you and you take those experiences and what you've learned and if you can take those and, and hopefully shape things um, for the better. At, at a new institution, um, that ultimately can can play out in a lot of success, whether for you, your team members, or your students. So, yeah, a lot of different emotions that that probably go into that. I mean, exciting, but super scary at the same time. It's not like changing a a position at your institution. You're still at the institution's different department. You're picking up and moving, going somewhere else. Yeah, excitement, doubt, and yeah. And mentioned it earlier being part of the Emerging Leaders Program and some of the goals that, that you had. And it's we interviewed Leslie Ross, who's also part of the same cohort, and you both are finishing uh, this October. Yes, Leslie's awesome. Super awesome person. And something sure. we've asked Leslie, which we didn't end up asking anyone else who's been part of the Emerging Leaders Program, but I think we'll ask you too, is like, you know, we talked about being paired with a you know mentor, mentee paired together, but we never really explored like, everyone's dynamic in terms of like, how has that relationship been? So like with uh, your, with your uh, mentor, how has that professional relationship been over the, these last couple of years? And then um, how has that person helped you with developing the goals and helping you accomplish those? That's, that's a fantastic question. So um, my mentor is, is Ross Hawkins. He's the director of the advising and tra- I think it's the advising and transfer center. They, I know that he just recently within the time that I've been in the ELP, he just became the director of that center at Missouri State University. Um, Ross and I had the opportunity to meet. We invited him actually to Virginia Tech to give. We were we were going through a um, a change in a change in our student information system where we were going to have our advising notes, the notes, the reports that we took after our advising appointments, have those visible so students would be able to see those. And so we invited him to come to Virginia Tech as a consultant because he had expertise in that field and he did an, a wonderful workshop. But I got to spend some time. I, I picked up Ross at the airport and we had a had a meal together at one point and got to take him back. But we got to spend some time together prior to um, I, I guess we had been. So I guess I'd been going to some of the ELP meetings. I was in the in the ELP, but we did, hadn't officially been assigned our mentor yet. And, but I had the opportunity to, to spend time with him and get to know him, and we just we just clicked from the start. So when we went through the, if anybody's ever been through the the ELP, you know there's a speed dating round where you get to a speed dating you know, where you get to go through and ask all the different mentors questions and talk about your goals and 
they talk about what they're hoping to get out of the the program and you you rank your your folks and that you like to work with and ross was my clear-cut number one and i'm just fortunate that that we got ended up getting paired so our dynamic has been pretty great we're uh Again, he, he took on a director role, and I just recently went from a, an associate director at Virginia Tech to this director position here. So more recently, especially since I've switched, it's been harder for us to connect. But like we've we've pretty much developed, and I don't know if it's the same for everybody else, but I feel like we've developed a almost a lifelong friendship at this point where you know we can share like share moments from our lives that are important. Like he, he's a great friend, even though he's in Springfield, Missouri, and I'm in now Lynchburg, Virginia. We've got we've got a pretty great connection, and I'm looking forward to to staying connected with him even after after the ELP class is over. But he's helped he's helped me think about, especially when I was running for the ATD chair. He really helped kind of because he, he'd been a, a chair of the transfer community, which is another large community in um, Nakata. He really helped me conceptualize and reframe some things in my like just my platform statement and tips and pointers along the way he's he's helped with interviewing for position like interviewing for, for other positions which i know is not necessarily part of the elp class but just that again that friendship we've developed he's been there he's been a, he's just been a, a such an important part of my life since then um and i hope that's the case for everybody who goes to the elp where they can help they can help them grow as a member of Nakata but also help them just grow as a person and as a professional um yeah I can't I can't speak highly enough of Ross and I'm fortunate that Lee and all the other people behind the scenes and Lee Cunningham and all the other people behind the scenes in, in the Emerging Leaders Program were um, good enough to pair me with him I'm, I'm very grateful but yeah, the ELP the ELP has been fantastic. It's 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 a great way to, to learn how the agent the organization works and how you can make some positive changes and really kind of pay it I guess pay it forward would be the best way to, to think of it. It's a great way to pay it forward. And I think what's been interesting and I and I'm the outsider, but everybody who has been through the program, the the mentors and mentees seem to champion one another uh, and and continue to to do so, uh, you know, for for throughout their careers afterwards, which is I think a real testament to the the strength of the the program. And I suppose, Bank, one of the things that I, I noticed in in your LinkedIn was, um, you know, your your talk of, uh, around I suppose your interest in. Um, yeah, I think you used the word champion, uh, holistic student support and advising. Could you talk a, a little bit, uh, I, I suppose, uh, about that? Sure. So I guess holistic advising to me, it's it's what a lot of people would call developmental advising instead of prescriptive advising. But for me, holistic advising is really trying to connect with the entire person in front of you, the entire student in front of you. So not just there to, to talk about, you know, they might come in asking you about changing a class or changing their major um but i've been in in situations where like that's what got the student in the door but then during the the conversation we found out that you know find out i find out that you know the wheels are coming off and they're getting you know they're they're failing other classes or they've run out of money or they're having trouble with their their significant other i've, I've worked with 
students. Uh, one of my first advising appointments was a student who uh, was a, a distance student, an e-campus student at Oregon State, who talked about having, who told me he was going to have to leave school because he'd just gotten a, a cancer diagnosis. So just really being there to help the student with the, that, you know, that fundamental issue that they're coming in with, but also just letting them know and, and emphasizing that they matter and that they belong and that we care and have time for them. I think for me, that's what holistic advising is, is, is helping students plan, plan their college career and, and navigate the campus and, and all the opportunities, curricular and co-curricular, but also being there to help mentor them with it if they need it. Um, not necessarily, I would say give advice. I don't like to just give advice unless it's, unless it's asked for, but really just there is a, hopefully a bright spot in their day or somebody that they know they can count on if they have a problem. And if I can't help them, they, they can trust me to get them to somebody who can. So yeah, I, I think that's, it's, it's just finding ways to connect with students at their level where they are in their journey and, and help them get up that, you know, get up that metaphorical mountain, however they, you possibly can help them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. So... Definitely a lot of a lot of moving parts as well, and one of those two is you know financial literacy. And um, you had written a Nakata Region Eight platform statement. It might have been when you were at Boise State, but you had talked about financial literacy for students. So I guess from your experience, how can advisors or even higher ups within advising help students with financial literacy or incorporating that? Um, financial literacy education in the academic advising process. That's, yeah, that's, uh, it's a, it's a huge, what can be a huge issue. Um, I, I am not a financial expert by any stretch. Um, at one point in my life, my, my credit score was in the garbage. Um, fortunately, my, my partner, my wife is, is, she stayed on me for a while and was, we were able to like work together to get my credit score back up. Um, but not know, I, I guess I just went into it as a college student. I didn't know how to manage my money. I got to college and the only like pre-college talk that I got from my dad, my parents was don't get arrested. I'm not bailing you out. Like that was all I was told. And then I was turned loose with a debit card and a bank account and a meal plan that had a certain number of swipes. And I didn't know how to, like, I didn't, I didn't even know how to do laundry. So like when I got to college, it was, I think within probably two weeks, my, my bank account was overdrawn and I didn't even understand why I didn't know how checks worked. Um, but financial and especially like, so helping educate students on first how to manage their money is to me wildly important because college is, is a lot of time and a lot of effort and it costs a lot of money. And we want students to move through that, the, this, space as efficiently as possible but 
when it comes to advising as well, um, making sure or making sure that we're doing our due diligence to make sure that or to, I guess, not advise students towards classes that they don't need in their curriculum. And I know that oftentimes degree plans have electives and, and students can can choose to take some stuff, but having worked with with non-traditional students and so many transfer students over the year really over the years really just being cognizant of like they're they're doing college on a budget and they want to maximize as many credits as they possibly can so finding those maybe those hidden credits in their transcript from years ago that that might be applicable towards you know just one more class um is super i think is is wildly important just putting in the time and doing those appeals or those um, substitutions if they're if they're not compromising the integrity of a degree plan but um, also too when it comes time for like adding or for dropping classes especially making sure that students are remaining financial aid eligible it, you don't want to encourage like yeah sometimes you, you know you might get a request to drop a class a student might request to drop a class and you, You've got to, I just find you've always got to check. You've always got to go back and make sure that if they drop this class, it's not going to make them financial aid ineligible or mean that they have to move off campus because they didn't have enough credits. So there are lots of implications to financial aid. Um, and I'm, I'm not a, again, I'm not a finance expert. I'm not a financial aid counselor, but I know enough to be dangerous in those areas and, and just making sure that you're you're always checking up and making sure that students and explaining to students too the, the process so that they know to be eligible for for these services or these these grants or scholarships you've got to maintain this certain or whether it's a gpa or a certain number of credits each year I, at virginia tech i had the privilege to be the first coordinator for the, uh, what we called the hub it was a scholarship mentoring program and so we got students um in our program, they weren't. You know, I, I was in the university studies program, which is a, a major exploration program for undeclared and undecided students, but is a way to uh, adapt and and help more students on our campus. We developed this hub scholarship mentoring program. So we worked with out-of-state students, we had high high achieving students, and we had um, underserved and underrepresented students from Virginia Tech. So we had students from all from all sorts of socioeconomic and socio-demographic backgrounds and ultimately our goal was to help make sure that they first and foremost knew what they needed to do to renew their scholarships each year they had to earn they had to hit certain credit marks they had to hit minimum of 30 credits per year over the fall winter and spring semesters uh, and they had to have a certain gpa they had to have at least a 3.0 to make the student the students in this scholarship program had to maintain at least a 3.0 and there were there were different scholarships, but we had students from literally all over campus, from all eight of the colleges um, at Virginia Tech. And so, with that, we would help them understand. It was it was a really holistic thing where we we'd help them understand their scholarship requirements and what they needed to do. But then we'd also connect with them. We were the kind of I guess secondary advisors, but we were considered mentors. We were just again another person in their corner, another hopefully bright spot in their day, and just helping them connect with campus, find other opportunities that maybe didn't come up with it in, in conversations with their primary academic advisor. And yeah, it was, it was great because there were so many students that had no, that we found had no idea, like the one, they didn't know they had a scholarship and didn't know why they were talking to us, but 
too. They did, had no idea what they even needed to do to renew that scholarship. And again, many of them were out-of-state students, and that's, Virginia Tech was not inexpensive for an out-of-state student. So keeping however much money they, they received from financial aid was, was wildly important to them and their families. So it's, it was ultimately retention. I mean, it was retention, but it was also just being good stewards for our students. I'm still chuckling at your wife being your life advisor and getting you back on track in, in terms of your, your credit score. My my wife is the most intelligent person that I've ever met in my life. She, is, she knows so much about so many different things. And yeah, she, uh, she, yeah, my, my credit score was in the garbage and she just, we worked together and stayed on it. And that's really inspired me to, to, have some of those sometimes and they're often and money is a very personal thing too finances are a very personal topic to discuss with students um and can sometimes be a little sticky or uncomfortable even and so just being comfortable enough to say you know i've I've been there i've been to a point where i I was an athlete my first time through college I, i was a student athlete and eventually had to get a job because i was not going to be able to, I didn't have any athletic scholarship money and, and my grades weren't such that my academic scholarship money was really going to carry me. So I had to get a job and, and had to learn some of that the hard way. I had a lot of growing up to do. And, but being able to have those conversations with students that say, you know, I, I can't, I can't for a minute say that I understand what you're going through, but I think I can relate to it. And, you know, if you'd like, if you'd like to know how, how I work through it, I'm happy to share that with you and just being comfortable sharing that with students. But yeah, it, it, where, where I am now with, with my, I guess, relationship with money and finances is I, I owe so much of that to my, to my better half. Well, your ability to be empathetic, uh, you know, I think with, with students shines through uh, banks and there's there's loads more that we we could cover. I think we'll have to get you back on uh, because uh, there's there's plenty more we could discuss. But for our listeners who who have, you know, been listening to you for uh, the, the, the best part of the last hour and are thinking like this guy, um, you know, he he has lots of great ideas. I'd love to find out more. I'd love to connect with him. How can they go about doing that? Um, well, they can they can you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't I'm not a, a big social media person. I have a LinkedIn account and I think I have a Facebook account so that I can see what parents and family are saying about our institution. Um, but I'm not an active social media person. But uh, yeah, if they look me up, they can find me at the lynchburg.edu website. If they look up Banks Blair, they should be able to find me there and email me. I'm happy to, to connect with, with pretty much anybody. I'm, we're all in this together. And the more people, you know, the more we can be paddling in the same direction. I think the sooner I'm, I'm also big on like cliches and metaphors, but uh, um, like the more we're paddling in the same direction, I think the further we'll get is, is a society in, in, in higher ed and the better we'll do helping our students and, and our futures. So, yeah, I'm happy to connect with anyone who's interested. I've been told I've lived a number of different lives, so I'm, I'm happy to share that. Well, thank you for sharing it with us and and with our listeners. This has been really fantastic. Thanks. Well, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Matt. This this has been a this has been a, a real gift. I, again, I listen to the podcast all the time, and uh, never thought I'd ever be on it. So, thank you so much for this opportunity.
Banks was fantastic. I thought there were a ton of takeaways on changing jobs and institutions. Really enjoyed hearing about the quiet professional advisor and also his insights on, into financial literacy and approaching that with students. Before we get to our next guest, let's hear from Dane Zanowski from Temple University about what's next on Dane's desk for our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane from Dane's Desk, the new spinoff series on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. I'm here to let you know about a couple of videos we have for Dane's Desk. This past week, I got to speak with Rachel Callahan, a friend and colleague, about the importance of professional development. And for the upcoming week, my friend and mentor, Gavin Farber from Temple University. He's going to give a shout out to his mentor and talk about some best advice that he was given as an advisor. So again, you can check out these videos on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. Subscribe to it. Leave comments on the videos. And if you want to connect with me through LinkedIn, that'd be great if you have ideas about future topics for the Dane's Desk series or if you want to be a guest as well. And as always, keep advising. Thanks, Dane. Catch up on all episodes of Dane's Desk and other videos on our YouTube channel. Up next, let's chat with Patricia McMillan from Ontario Tech University. All right, next up, we have Patricia McMillan. Patricia is in her 14th year of advising at Ontario Tech University, where she works with students in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities. Patricia says she could have benefited from an advisor in her post-secondary education path as she started in psychology and then moved to theater before finally settling on marketing. She started in advising as an administrative assistant in the advising office and has worked her way up to senior academic advisor. Patricia is currently in the last few months of her term as the Nakata Region 5 Chair and also serves on the EOP Advisory Board as well as the Membership Retention and Recruitment Committee. She was lucky to be selected as an emerging leader for the 2016 to 2018 EOP class and as a mentor in the 2020-2022 class. Patricia is an active member in both the advisor training and development and Canadian advising communities and will become chair of the Web Events Advisory Board in October. She has presented at both regional and annual conferences for Nakata. Patricia is passionate about advisor training and development and loves to use pop culture references to help advisors remember and apply advising practices. In February 2021, she presented a webinar that combined her love of Harry Potter and the different advising approaches. Patricia hopes to continue to find ways to combine her pop culture with her love of advising in the future. Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I sound so important when you read that. <laughs> you are important, and we are delighted to be chatting to you today. Now, the way we always kind of begin is to hear about your path into advising. It gives uh, you know us and the listeners an opportunity, I suppose, to, to get to know you a little bit better. So can you talk to us, uh, I suppose, about how you, you found your way into advising, Patricia? Sure. I'm one of those uh, purely by accident into advising people. I've, I've heard a few of them on the podcast before. Uh, so I, as Matt said in the introduction, out of high school, I started in uh, psychology, a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Then I had to take calculus and we decided that was not a good idea. Uh, so then I switched to theater because I had always wanted to be an actress. So I took theater for a year and then began to feel like how 
am I going to have a job and make money? So uh, I switched to business. <laughs> so I ended up uh, taking marketing and really finding, uh, I loved accounting, which was shocking to me, but um, marketing and that kind of creativeness was where I ended up. So I worked in marketing in an insurance company for a few years. And then um, my husband got a job at a university in Oshawa, so a new city. So I was looking for employment and saw um, an administrative assistant in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities. So I'm like, it's at the same institution he's at, that will be convenient for carpool. Um, so let's try that. Uh, not really knowing anything about it. I, as I said, I would have benefited from an advisor <laughs> when I was in school. I did not have one that I'm aware of. Um, so yeah, I applied for this job, got it. It was really, it really was an administrative position for the advisor. So she was all by herself, but I was, you know, the one doing the paperwork, mass emails to students, that kind of thing. Uh, and then as I got more comfortable, she started giving me more advising work. So then it, I changed into an advisor because she's like, you're doing advising work. You should be an advisor. Uh, so I became an academic advisor, worked in a couple of different faculties and then um, switched to the senior advisor once I had been there a while and, and knew what I was doing. So yeah, it's one of those, I didn't know it existed until I got in it and realized this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, so it was, it was a, a different path than a lot of people take, but I'm glad I ended up where I did. Yeah, that's. It, it, I feel like that's a lot of lot of stories too, right? Where it's like, you know, I didn't know this actually existed, and then I found out about it later, and then it's like, oh, this is how I fell into it, and loving it ever since. And it's it's great to hear. And yeah. so, for those who may not know much about Ontario Tech University, what can you tell them about your institution as well as as senior academic advisor? What does your role entail? Okay, so Ontario Tech formally, well, officially, legally, the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, um, but we've recently rebranded as Ontario Tech University. Um, so contrary to the tech, I am in social science and humanities. So we do have, uh, we do have a broad spectrum of courses, but yeah, we have a lot of, of the STEM courses as well. We're, I think, the newest, if not one of the newest, uh, Ontario universities. So we've been around since uh, 2002. So we're coming up on our 20th anniversary, um, which in terms of universities is very, very young. <laughs> and the other ones out there are like 200 and we're 20. Um, so it, it gives us that feel as well. We're a smaller institution. We have about, I wanna say between 10 to 12,000 students. Um, my faculty in particular is around 15, 1600 at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's, it's smaller in terms of, of some of the big universities. Um, all Ontario universities were publicly funded, so um, we're linked to the government in that way. But yeah, we're tech with a conscience is the big <laughs> the big tagline that our president likes to use um, for our institution. So I, I guess we us in social science we're the we're the conscience <laughs> of the tech. And then in terms of, of your own role there, um, I, I, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more in, in relation to that. And also, do you still draw on those uh, those acting skills and the marketing skills that you picked up in, in college? Uh, yes, I am the default presenter <laughs> for anything at my institution. Uh, if there's a, you know, a presentation that we have to give to students, let's see if Trisha can do it, seems to be the uh, the common common theme. So uh, I do draw on the the acting and presenting skills for that for sure. Um, so my role entails meeting with students, helping them 
pick their classes. Right now we are in the midst of registration, so I'm enjoying this break from the sea of emails um, that are currently waiting for me. It's better than the sea of students that would normally be outside of my office, um, so I will take the emails. It gives you time to process an answer. Um, but yeah, anything we always, the tagline we always use with students is the advising office might not be the place that they need to be, but if they come to us, we'll tell them where they should be because we know if it's not us, who can help them for any of the issues or problems that they have. So technically I'm supposed to help them academically, but theoretically I think we help them with everything. So, uh, you know, a lot of students dealing with a lot of difficult issues, especially around COVID and trying to organize work and home and school and, and online and not online and everything is, is what's taking most of my time now. Yeah, and I guess speaking of that, like how is orientation going and how does how do things look for your institution regarding like the upcoming term? That's a good question, Matt. <laughs> so it's one of those ever-changing uh, situations. Right now, so typically our students register. We have a fall semester which starts in September and a winter semester which which starts in January and then spring summer. So typically they register for both fall and winter at this time of the year. This year we're just doing fall because we didn't want to commit to the style of classes for the winter yet. So most of the fall, any of our big classes are still online. The um, small, some of the smaller classes have at least some in-person component, um, not so much my faculty, but like the science engineering, we have a nursing program. A lot of those labs are definitely on campus and hands-on where they need to be. Um, so as the social science, we have a lot more, I think, online than some of the other um, faculties do. Uh, just trying to, to space people out. It's, it's, if we can physically fit them in a classroom, we are doing so, but it's really, I think, 75 and under classes that we're able to accommodate. So still mostly online. We're hoping for the winter. Um, I think we're going to register that October-ish. So they're hoping to have clearer guidelines of where we're standing with you know, our government and public health guidelines. So we're hoping for a lot more in person at that point. I think there's a lot of hoping going on in everyone's institution at the moment. Nobody's exactly sure where, where we'll, we'll stand, but should become clearer over the, the next few weeks and, and months. Now, Patricia, one of the things Matt mentioned in your bio was that one of your areas of interest is around advisor training and development. Can you talk to us a little bit about where that interest kind of came from and how, you know, uh, some, of, some of the maybe initiatives and things you've been involved in? So the interest came for me because, as, as I said earlier, I just kind of fell into advising. So I did not know it as a profession, all the things that could happen. So it was actually when I was an advisor before moving into the senior advisor role, my boss said, you should maybe go to a conference, like attend an Nakata conference and, and learn a bit more and get a little more involved that way. <laughs> little did she know. Um, <laughs> so that was Salt Lake City, October 2013, uh, went all by myself discovered Nakata, discovered all of the wonderful things about advising. And that's when the the passion for growing the profession really came from. Because we were kind of, I mean, part of it, I think, is because we're a new institution. A lot of people were just filled these roles without, as similar to me, without previously having exposure or experience in these roles. So kind of building the advising from, from scratch. Um, so we've had, uh, like, training on campus. Um, they're putting like all of the advisors have, you know, we've done the Nakata e-tutorials and things like that um, that we've gone through. But we also, um, 
like I like to, if there's webinars or things like that, I share them like book a room and everybody comes and we, we get together on those. Um, so it's budget as always is a problem, uh, but I like to share my knowledge. So the things that I learn and I gather from Nakata, I like to share um, with my fellow advisors who might not have the opportunity or the time or things like that to get ridiculously involved like I do. <laughs> I wouldn't even necessarily say I have the time. I just do it anyway because I love it so much. <laughs> that Salt Lake City conference, that was that had a lot of energy to it. There was so many great things from the people that attended the presentations. And then you had the grades for then grades first people that were giving away the, the super advisor t-shirts. This is my first, my first free t-shirt from a conference was the supervisor. I shouldn't admit that I still wear it. That was like seven years ago, but I still have it and I still wear it. That one and the advising for the future from, is that Louisville? So that one's at least not too old. Yeah, no. That's good. Yeah. No, I, that venue was huge though for yes. like that was my first, I hadn't been to a region conference or anything that was my first like conference and that Salt Lake City conference center was the most ginormous and you needed the whole 10 minutes to get from room to yeah. room and just even getting to the, the convention center so we were staying at the Marriott so there was a few blocks away so shout out to Harmon's grocery store that had to me the best coffee that we were able to go pick it up, walk our way to the convention center and get some energy. But yeah, walking around the convention center was, you, you got your steps in, let's just say that. That's for sure. That's for sure. It was huge. So anyone in comparison after that, I'm like, mm, it's big, but it's not as big as right. Salt Lake City. Like, let, let me tell you about Salt Lake City. <laughs> so looking back on chairing Region 5, you know, it's, a lot has happened. I mean, there's the pandemic, you know, and, you know, to your commitment or something a little over that but what accomplishments do you think region five has made in the last couple of years and as the new chair starts in october any tips for the new chair that you wish you knew when you started yes i hope there's not a pandemic that she has to deal with so um jamie angles coming in in october uh so the, the region is in fantastic hands with her um it's been a very interesting region chair for me because I started October 2019. So I really didn't even get myself off the ground and running and the pandemic. The first thing I felt like I really did as a region chair was the meeting where we canceled the conference in Milwaukee. <laughs> like that was because that was March 2020. And I remember I had been at a like one day conference at a local um, institution and it was on the drive back that I got the email from the executive office saying, can we have a meeting this afternoon? to talk about the conference and I'm like, and we're gonna get canceled. So that was uh, that was the first big thing of my chairship. So a lot of a lot of stuff that I, I wish could have gotten accomplished didn't necessarily, but um, I'm trying to lay the groundwork moving forward, um, looking at like a, a new social justice kind of position on the committee. We don't have one of those, some of the other regions do. Um, so setting that up um, just, ensuring our conferences move forward. We have a, a mentoring program that we've kept going even through the, the pandemic and, and it actually worked well because without having to meet in person, we, we were able to open it up a little better, our mentoring program, because they didn't have to attend the conference um, to join that program. So that's something we might keep going is, is, well, we like to have it attached to the conference and it'll be a nice if you can go to keep it separate just so we can, we can get more people in uh, region five. We are, I believe, with the latest data, the, the largest region, um, but we do tend to be 
the most members seem to come from where the conference is. <laughs> so it's, you know, had we been in Milwaukee this year, we would have had a lot more of our, our Wisconsin members join us. So um, I keep telling people that the um, annual conference this year in Cincinnati is in Region 5, so I'm hijacking it and making it my Region 5 conference since I didn't get an in-person Region 5 while I was chair. I'm just going to... So if you see me going around with, you know, Region 5 and <laughs> talking all the time, that's why. <laughs> I want my conference. <laughs> Um, I I think that that will make for an even more entertaining annual conference uh, to to see uh, to see that play out. Um, now you you are you know as you said you're you you are very involved in in Nakata and one of the the areas you've also been heavily involved in is the Emerging Leaders Program. Uh, can you talk to us a, a little bit about that? Given that you have been on kind of both sides now as as mentee and and mentor. Yes, uh, fabulous program. Uh, it's another one of those. A lot of a lot of my Nakata involvement has been a let's give this a try and see what happens. Uh, so that was the emerging leader. I had not been with Nakata long, long enough to make the minimum uh, when I applied, uh, and I got in the first time, which is obviously is not the norm is what I've been told. Um, and I had a fabulous mentor, Sally Garner, uh, in Oregon. So she was uh, instrumental in helping me figure out a path and what I wanted to do. Cause it was like deer in headlights of, oh my God, there's so much, what do I do? Um, so I was just not, I needed direction and Sally provided that for me. She had been a region chair she had you know presented at conferences and all that so she was able to to give me some perspective and and yeah you can do this when i said is region chair something i could actually do she gave me that confidence of yes you can um so she helped me build that groundwork for that and then now seeing the flip side uh as mentor to the lovely maria domingo um who is very very easy to mentor because she's fantastic and just does everything anyway um i feel like i am there for moral support more than uh to help her out with things um it's it's i said this to her actually it's a lot less work on the mentor side uh because you're just like that sounds good have you thought of this um so it's uh much easier uh, to be the mentor than the mentee for sure. But it's it's fun again to explore those ideas. Like what's out there? What can Maria do? What can I suggest for her? Um, to just see the amazing possibilities. Nakata has endless leadership possibilities that you can get involved in. Um, and it's nice to see um, the different areas that I might not have been comfortable with myself to see Maria go into those. Like she was doing like book review and things like that. So um, living vicariously through someone else is is a nice benefit of the ELP program as well. Yeah, and, and Sally's also, especially on on Facebook, seeing all the the pictures of her pets, like her oh, dogs. Her yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're adorable. I love it. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then Maria, I've known, gosh, for quite a few years now. And just to see the amount of, you know, things that she's, opportunities that she's, you know, getting involved in, I'm like, keep doing it, you know, keep going. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she's already doing other stuff. I'm like, save that. Make that a year <laughs> <Right>? two goal. <laughs> Don't need to do everything in year one. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> But with the Emerging Leaders Program, you know, some sometimes people are on the fence of like, oh, should I apply? Should I not? Do I even qualify? You know, what what even is a leader or a mentor? Like for you, you know, what got you to kind of the nudge to apply as, you know, originally as an emerging leader and then to apply as a mentor? 
Uh, I think originally it was probably encouragement. So Nancy Roadruck was the chair of Region 5 at the time that I was applying. I was the conference co-chair for the 2016 conference in Toronto, um, which is still one of my career highlights. Um, and I think I just, I had mentioned it or said something about it to Nancy, who said, that's a fantastic idea. I think you should apply. And at that time, the requirements were you needed an ACADA member to nominate you. Um, so Nancy stepped up and said she would be willing to do that for me. So that was the the nudge I needed um, to go, okay. Because I had just heard of it and I was like, well, what's this? I think I might have gone to a presentation about it. Um, so that was kind of how I, I went into it. And then um, I became a member of the advisory board. They Emerging Leaders Advisory Board. So being on that, knowing that there's always a need for mentors, um, because one thing, and get this out there, so it's on a recording, you do not have to have been an emerging leader to be a mentor. You just have to have been a leader in Nakata. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, so we're often um, needing more mentors um, to apply. So knowing that, I was like, oh, maybe I should apply. So um, I was a little on the fence of should I do it? And I, I chatted with um, Lee Cunningham, who's the executive office um, rep for the ELP program, and just said, you know, is it a good idea? I'm on the board, but I'm also a region chair. Like, is this a good time? And I talked to Sally because I asked Sally if she thought um, uh, being a mentor while being the region chair made sense. And she said, I think it makes perfect sense for you. So, um, and this was after our time had been up. So uh, she's still helping me. So yeah, they, they suggested it and I went for it and got it. The best part when you are on the advisory board, you have to review all of the applications for the mentor and for the emerging leaders. But when you apply to be a mentor, you don't have to do the mentor. So I got out of some work by applying as well. <laughs> so that's good. But I enjoy, I enjoy so much reading those applications. It's a lot of work because there's a lot of reading involved and then, you know, making sure you're getting a sense of the person, but it's so fun just to see the, the different people out there in the organization. Absolutely. Uh, I, I haven't read those, but having read conference proposals, which are also always fascinating, and, and you kind of glean so many ideas even from just reading the, the proposals. Um, and I suppose one of the things that, that would be really interesting, and for, for listeners who might not know anything about it, um, but you talked about the presentations you've done previously, can you talk to us about the magical world of academic advising, advising styles and personalities unite? Yes. So that was the webinar. I assume in this podcast, I'm free to say copyrighted things. We can say Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, that was the, in my presentation, I did it um, first at the region conference in Colum Columbus. I was going to say Columbia, Columbus, Ohio. And then at the annual conference in Phoenix, where it was called Academic Advising at Hogwarts because I could say that. Um, you can kind of get away with it in a live presentation, but once you're recording it and putting it online, it's a no-go. So we had to get very creative with how to talk about Harry Potter without talking about Harry Potter. Um, so it was, we kind of took two Harry Potter presentations. I was matched with some lovely people from uh, Hawaii um, who had done a previous presentation on personality styles in the Harry Potter houses. So that's where the M personalities unite part comes from. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it started, I think it was a Facebook post. Um, Heather Doyle from Dalhousie University said, can you imagine being an advisor at Hogwarts or something like that? And I went, yes, I can. 
let's think about that more. And I just started to think about what would it be like? How would Harry's life have been different if he had an advisor? And then I just, I started rereading the books and like digging into them. And I was originally thinking of something with the theory because I had seen um, Ryan Sheckle's Star Wars presentation, if either of you have seen that, where he talked about Star Wars and, and advising theories. But I found the approaches work much better than finding the different what could be considered advising interactions in the Harry Potter stories and relating those to the different approaches. Um, my favorite being I called Dumbledore appreciative advising with his different uh, his different ways of <laughs> dealing with things. Um, so yeah, it was it was the most fun presentation I have ever prepared for in my life. Um, I had a fabulous time, um, full rooms both times. Phoenix, I was floored with the number of people and the response I got. Like it was the one of the greatest presentation feelings I have ever had. Um, the webinar was also fabulous, but you're not getting that. <laughs> the feedback that you get from a live audience. Um, but it was still, uh, it was it was very interesting when we started talking about the webinar. And my the essential, all of my PowerPoint was pictures <laughs> from the Harry Potter movies. So when the talking with Lee about how is this going to work? She's like, we're going to have to get creative. Um, and I own Harry Potter Lego, which since that is my Lego that I own, and I can take pictures of it, those become my copyrighted material. So I basically got to play with Lego <laughs> to take pictures to put in my presentation. Uh, and it was so much fun. Um, I have probably too much Harry Potter Lego, but now I can say I, I needed it. It was for work. Um, I don't know how I'm gonna continue that. I'll have to come up with another presentation, I guess, uh, to get away with it. But uh, I even like at one point I was, cutting out little tiny educational decrees to tape on the wall of my Lego um, for one of my slides. So it was great fun. Um, but I basically, I, the reason I, I wanted to do it as well was just to, I think it comes from the student in me where I always like to relate things to something to help me remember. So this was the, how do I remember what appreciative advising is? Oh, well, I'll think of Dumbledore and the ways he does things and the different steps, you know, it just leads me that way. Or developmental advising, I had McGonagall and her reactions, interactions with Harry for that one. So um, I just like to, I like to give people ways to remember things and, and a different way to think about them so that you go, oh, okay, I understand what that is now. So I'm still trying to figure out a way to work Buffy, the vampire slayer into something. I'm leaning towards the core competencies, but I don't know. We'll see if Slayer competencies, advising competencies, they're the same. Now are we talking about the movie or the series? The series. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify in case anyone's like, hey. <laughs> but yeah, the webinar, I thought it was a fantastic job to be able to still say Harry Potter without saying Harry Potter. Right. The boy um, wizard. <laughs> Yeah, and the use of the Lego with, with the pictures, I think th that worked tremendously well. Um, so a great way to kind of go around it. And it kind of reminds me of a presentation that Ryan Shuckle is on for one of the webinars where he couldn't say Star Wars, so I had to think of creative ways to say Star Wars. But yeah, very, very well done. And I, I like seeing a lot of these, the pop culture ones um, and how you can incorporate those. And I guess the question would be, where does this love for pop culture come from? And is there any advice that you have for those who want to incorporate pop culture into, let's say, their advisor training, maybe at their institution, especially if it's trying to convince their supervisor? 
Um, okay, I'll start with the first half, though. Where did the love of pop culture come from? I, it's always been there, always. Um, I got to the point where my family wouldn't play. I had a Trivial Pursuit pop culture edition, and they would not play it with me. Um, when we do play the regular edition, the entertainment category is always the first one I go to. Um, but I will say my pop culture knowledge is somewhat limited to, I'd say, before 2005. Um, <laughs> there's, when they're showing, you know, you see on, you know, Entertainment Tonight, it's like this person and this person were out, and I'm like, I don't know who those people are. Um, so I do have a love of pop culture, just maybe not current pop culture. Um, and I think, I mean, part of that, I, I started in theater. Like, it's always been, like, entertainment has always been a thing that I have enjoyed and, and I have liked. Um, I may or may not have also been in a band in high school, but we don't have to resurface that tape anytime soon. Um, so yeah, just entertainment and music and movies and TV is, is always been my thing. That's my relaxing. When I get time to myself, I usually, it's TV or movie that is what I, what I turn to. So, um, then my advice for integrating pop culture into <laughs> advising stuff is just go for it. Like it's, I mean, maybe not something that's really, really niche and not a lot of people would know. Um, I, I mean, I was pretty safe, I think, with Harry Potter, knowing that there would be a large audience of people who were familiar with it. But I did have people in my presentation because I asked, like, has anybody not read the books? Has anybody not even seen the movies? And there was a couple who hadn't and they sat through it and they seemed to have a good time. So um, making sure that what you're saying also still makes sense outside of the realm of that that particular pop culture. But um I don't know how to convince the money makers to maybe <laughs> I don't have that. I have a very supportive boss who uh, was uh, behind me and 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 for it. So, uh, but starting a presentation at your own institution is a great way to like test run things and see how it's going and does it make sense? Um, are your references too obscure? <laughs> but just know if you ever get to the point of doing a webinar think in the back of your head how you're going to make this work without saying anything copyrighted. <laughs> and maybe then actually kind of building um, on that, Patricia, because as you said, you you are kind of the go-to person um, in your institution in terms of presentations. It, for for listeners, you know, who, you know, maybe are um, new to public speaking or, you know, are not particularly comfortable. Do you have any advice to to the listeners in just in terms of, of public speaking or presenting in general? Um, I think just have fun with it and not be as rigid. I, I think I was thinking the other day about when somebody asked, you know, why do you like presenting? And I'm like, because I know what I'm talking about. Like I was thinking about like in school, like when you had to do a presentation for a class in school and you're like, you know, like the bare minimum that you had to do to put this presentation. So the questions was the scariest part because you're like, they're going to ask me something and I'm not going to know the answer. Um, but when it comes to like advising or these presentations that I put together, I feel common, especially in my institution. Like there's no question a student can ask me that I'm not going to know the answer to, um, to be able to tell them. So I think just being comfortable with your subject matter is the most important thing because then you're just automatically going to feel more comfortable more at ease when you're talking um, and i find for me and other people might be opposite i find for me having an outline of here's what i'm going to say and just practicing it um, i then am notorious for not referring to those notes when i do present because i have practiced it so many times that 
I don't need it anymore because I've gotten used to it. But literally writing out, here's what I'm going to say for this slide. Here's what I'm going to say for this one. Um, and then just practice it a bunch. I remember before Phoenix in my hotel room practicing my presentation because there was a Harry Potter marathon on TV. Um, so I had that on in the background as I was practicing my presentation again before doing it. So practice, write it out, use other people. <laughs> you can as well to practice in front of and get some pointers but it's I think it is one of those things that you just have to do more and more to get more comfortable with yeah no definitely great advice and you know a great book too that kind of encompasses a lot of that too is called speaker's edge secrets and strategies for connecting with any audience and it's a book that has a lot of the different um if anyone's heard of toastmasters and the world championship of a public speaking they do have uh, like five different um, authors of this book that were like world champions. So they go over a lot of stuff from like platform performance, content excellence, and various techniques, including a lot of the ones that, that you've mentioned. And, you know, something also that was mentioned was, you know, the webinar. So like the Harry Potter, not Harry Potter webinar, but you're going to be the incoming chair for the Web Events Advisory Board. And for those who don't know, what what can you say about what the Web Events Advisory Board is? And is there anything you're looking forward to as incoming chair? Yes. Um, so I am new to the advisory board. They were in need of a chair when the one they were hoping for went and got himself another position at the institution. Cough, cough, Matt. Um, so <laughs> I was asked if I could step in uh, and, and take this chair position. So um, when meeting with the current chair and um, again, Lee in the executive office, just they told me about it and what's involved and they had me at, you get to watch all of the webinars um, because that to me was like, okay, awesome, uh, gaining all of this knowledge. So the web events advisory board is, is essentially, as it says, it's an advisory board to the executive office in regards to their web events, which at the moment is webinars, but who knows what the future holds for the web, web, web events in my two year term. Um, so they, you know, help recruit people for proposals to submit for webinars. They review um, the webinars themselves to give feedback to both the preventers, presenters and the executive office on, on how things went. Review old webinars to make sure they're still relevant. Um, one of the things that was mentioned was making sure that they don't have any content that is at the time was probably okay, but maybe now is not you know, considered correct. So um, removing any of that content uh, that exists and probably more that I don't know of yet because I don't have the chair position, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited, um, especially now in the time that we're in, I think web events are not going anywhere and they've just gained in popularity. So uh, with people's budgets slashed for traveling, um, I think we might see an increase in web event registration. And Patricia, one of the things that would probably be interesting for, for listeners to, to hear in, in terms of how do you approach like t time management and juggling all of these things between your your own role at your, at your institution, the, the ELP, the Region 5 chair, the, and, 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 and still taking on and presenting and your life outside of advising, oh, any, any tips you can offer on that? Probably not. <laughs> That's a good question, Colin. Um, I thankfully have a very understanding and accommodating boss who is fine with like, technically I should be working right now, but I am chatting with you too. Um, and she is okay with me using my work time for Nakata purposes as long as it does not get crazy. Um, so other than that, it's lists. 
lists, 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 lists. Um, I currently have one that on the bottom of it has poster. Like there's a bunch of stuff above it that needs to be done first, but then poster's already on there. I don't need that poster till October, but I know if I don't start working on that poster now, it will not be ready by October. Um, I will be scrambling come Cincinnati. So um, yeah, just keeping an eye on what I have to do and just it, taking that time. Often I use like my lunch, my lunch hour um, is when I'll, I'll get some, you know, shoot at the Nakati emails or answer the stuff I have to do, but it's, everything is volunteer which is what they keep telling everybody. It's volunteer. So you do it if you can and when you can. Um, so there are obviously crunch times where things have to get done um, and things need to happen, like the um, reading the proposals for the um, conference or reading uh, applications for the ELP uh, program. I just, you just have to make the time. It's, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there is, is what I do. Um, I also have two children, so working around their lives, evenings get a little full. Um, that's why when I do finally get my TV time and I get to crash on the couch at eight o'clock at night, um, I fully enjoy it. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of lists to remember to get things done and little bits at a time is what I do. Instead of, you know, two hours and get everything done, which might be better if I had that, it's, you know, a little bit each day. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And, you know, utilizing that time. So maybe you're on a road trip and maybe you're still working i don't know but <laughs> maybe you answer emails from your car yes but exactly <laughs> you have an exciting thing coming up you know maybe it starts tomorrow i don't know can you tell us about that are we referring to my vacation matt we are <laughs> yes i finally get to uh i'm in ontario uh and all of my family is in nova scotia um for non-canadians that's two provinces away. <laughs> so it's a bit of a drive. Uh, but we finally got the all clear. Uh, we're vaccinated. The province will let us in. We're allowed to come back when we're done. So uh, after two years of not being home and seeing everybody, uh, I leave tomorrow. But I technically have not taken tomorrow off of work. I am working from the car. So students might get some interesting emails if we hit a, you know, <laughs> a dead zone with the, with the data, who knows what will happen, but uh, it could be interesting. And I am so excited, but I have a billion things I still have to do by the end of the day, but it's all good. So it's a good feeling when you're anticipating something. Well, somehow given your ability to juggle so many things, I am confident in your ability to get things finished before you, you need to at the at the end of the day. Because I have the lists, Colm. I have the See, lists. <laughs> but but you know enough to have those lists. And I suppose with that in mind, in terms of you because you do have, you know, expertise in like public speaking, in time management, in event planning, in presenting in all of those things and, and just interesting in general. For listeners who want to to get in touch with you to to hear more and maybe bounce ideas um is there a way that they can do that absolutely they can email me um you want me to just rattle off my email sure sure, sure yeah it's very simple it's my first name so p-a-t-r-i-c-i-a dot m-a-c-m-i-l-l-a-n at here's the fun part ontariotechu.ca so o-n-t-a-r-i-o-t-e-c-u-t-e-c-h-u well, if you google me google patricia mcmillan ontario tech it'll come up or i'm on i'm on the nakata website under region five you can find me um i'm friends with a lot of people on facebook as well you can find me there so i'm always happy to help people again it might take a few days for the response to come <laughs> 
I will get back to you. We can uh, we can probably people will get the spelling of of you your name and the institution in the show notes as well. So I'm I'm, I'm confident <laughs> that they good. will be able to to get in touch with you, and I've no doubt that many people will because this has been really interesting and insightful. And just want to thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was an honor. Great chat with Patricia. I enjoyed hearing about all her different roles within Nakata and thought she offered some really useful insights on presenting and public speaking. The next interview is with Jane Last. Our next guest on Adventures in Advising is Jane Last. After graduating from Dublin City University with a BA in journalism, Jane began her career as a regional journalist in 2002 before moving to the Evening Herald as a reporter in 2005. She was assistant news editor and picture editor in 2007 before becoming deputy editor of Independent.ie in 2012, helping drive growth with the site becoming Ireland's most read news site by 2015. In 2015, she was appointed head of news and visuals for the independent news and media group, overseeing news editorials and visuals for independent.ie, as well as print titles, the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent, Sunday World, and the Herald. In 2019, she joined Dublin City University in the newly created role of Head of Digital Communications, with her role taking in all of DCU's main social media accounts and website. Her role also involves growing audience and engagement with various stakeholders and communities. Jane, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me delighted to get the opportunity to to chat to you and I think it's, it's going to be really interesting because your your background is kind of so different from many of the people we have on had on on the podcast to date and I think one of the beauties is that you know the people who come on do have different and varied backgrounds but you worked with some major titles I know that because I'm aware of, of the titles our, our listeners I'm sure if they google them will see I mean the independent is the most read newspaper in, in the country but I think one of the things we like to do at the in the podcast is to give listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better so can you talk to me I suppose about how you came to to work in in higher ed and maybe share some of your your stories of being a a journalist and as you move through your career yeah thanks Uh, okay let's settle in (laughs) this could be a while I'm only joking um so yeah as as, so my name uh, I'm originally from um Coolock in North Dublin um if any of your visitors have ever been to Dublin it's it's an area that's right beside Dublin airport um, and it's very close to city centre so after I graduated from DCU um I was very much a city girl and um I ended up moving down to the Midlands like to a town called Tullamore County Offaly which is slap bang in the middle of Ireland and um, there I learned about the Irish Farmers Association and farming and tractors and everything to do with rural Ireland and it was a real um, eye-opener I'm so glad um, it was the Offaly Independent the newspaper that I worked for I'm so glad that was my first job because it really did open my eyes to an Ireland outside of Dublin and um, I think I thought that was very important and um, 
so yeah, like I was, I was down there for three years and it was a great um, learning curve for young journalists because, you know, I was in a very small newsroom and you had responsibilities. It didn't matter that you were just out of college. You, you had responsibilities. You had your training in college and they expected you to put this training into practice. So I sent to council meetings. I sent to inquests. I sent to district courts and circuit courts, real bread and butter stuff. And um, also we had uh, three TDs in that, in that constituency who had a very um, high profile nationally um, at the time. So Tullamore is actually in the news a lot. Um, so I said it was, it was a great um, place. There was lots, lots happening, lots of different stories. And I said it was, it was great for young journalists doing all that bread and butter, um, council stuff, local politics, um, inquests, courts, and so on and so forth. And then after three years, I was like, you know what, it's, it's time for me to, to move. I've, I've done a lot here, but I'd like to try and get into nationals. And um, so that's where I started with the Evening Herald back in my native Dublin. And um, yeah, so I, I did a lot in um, print then. And then I think the game changer for me professionally was moving into independent.ie where I was deputy editor so I was very much a print um journalist and a news editor and then um my uh editor-in-chief at the time Stephen Ray he said no listen I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you in independent.ie you're gonna be um deputy editor and I was like I have no idea about digital like I know about Twitter I know about but I and he's like listen it goes and this is something that's always stayed with me and um, he said like listen content is central to everything and good stories is central to everything you concentrate on the content you concentrate on the stories and everything else will come and and basically that that's what happened so i worked with a wonderful team there um and we just worked on that site and it became the most read news site by um 2015 um we were just the biggest breaking news site lots of stories um and we were getting like millions of unique users every month and both at ireland and abroad and then um, that's then I went on to become um, head of news and, and visuals, which was pictures and videos. I think so. I was just thinking back to some of the stories I did. So I remember when I first um, came up to, to Dublin and um, Bebo, Bebo had just started. So I don't know whether many of you listen to remember Bebo. Um, but I remember like showing because I, I was probably one of the youngest reporters in the office time. And I remember, so is this thing called Bebo? <laughs> And you have your picture up there and you have all your interests listed down here. And like um I was like saying like everyone was on it, like everyone was on it. And then um YouTube was just was just starting as well. So I remember um I did an investigation piece about a thing called happy slapping on YouTube. So it was when um people were just getting randomly slapped in the face on the street and it was it was going viral on YouTube. So, you know, there, there were these new things happening and then, you know, people got overtaken by Facebook. So I, I was kind of very much in the social media and um, space. And then when I got promoted onto news desk, I, I, I was busy with other things. Like, so I suppose so I, I kind of lost a little bit and so I lost a bit of ground in social media for a couple of years. But um, yeah, like that, that was really interesting. I think some of the stories that um, I worked on in the Herald, like I was, would have been involved with the Queen's visit and when the Queen of England came to visit Ireland and also Barack Obama's visit. And um, so logistically, like we just had journalists and photographers all over the country. And um, the Queen's visit, the one thing that really uh, struck me at the time was, um, I remember going to a briefing in the Department of Foreign Affairs. I'm there for a city paper and I'm just like there fighting for absolutely everything. Like I was like, I want to get the picture of the Queen sipping the pint and I want this, I want that and whatever. But I remember um, an official just saying, she was like, listen, he goes like, you know, I, I was managing the photographers for, for all this. And, you know, we had like, at the time we had three deadlines, like one at 9 a.m., one at half 11 and one at 1 p.m. So we're under lots of pressure as a daily newspaper to get these pictures in and, and hit the streets. But um, 
the official is saying to me, you know, there's going to be a problem for you with the photographers. And I was like, why? We're going to have them there. He's like, yeah, he goes, but the Queen of England, she's she's quite small and she likes to wear a large hat. Um, and she is very, very difficult to photograph. <laughs> and that was true. Like, they were literally like, you know, so we're getting photographs in and we're barely seeing her face. But um, no, we did get some wonderful shots in. We got some great fun pages. Um, I suppose like during my time there, like I would have covered, um, I would have overseen coverage of a lot of high profile trials, elections. Um, you know, the old celebrity might come into town, like Tom Cruise or Britney Spears or Rihanna. I remember Rihanna doing her video for in Belfast where she was running through a cornfield and the farmer going mad about that. Um, yeah, there, there was, there was absolutely loads. Um, a lot of very sad stories we would have covered, but there's some gems of, of positive ones as well. And um, so, yeah, so like I was head of, um, news for four years in the Indo and I think really I was, 38 39 I'd been in journalism since I was 22 and I was thinking you know what I think I'd like to try something else and um, I, I loved journalism but I was like I, I, I think I've learned so much here and um, I think I've gone as far as I can go and I'd like to get out and you know try something different and um, so I saw the position in DCU and um, I applied for it and um yeah, basically, like when I when I was talking to GC in my interview, like they were just asking me about the social media platforms and, and again how we built an audience for for independent.ie, and I was just like saying like you know content is everything, stories is everything. People like to read other people's stories, they want to see interesting visually, you know, content that engages uh, whether it be visually or through text or, or whatever, um. And, you know, also, I also said as well that, um, you know, I didn't see social media platforms as being solely marketing feeds. For me, social media platforms are all about talking and engaging with your communities. And there's lots of different communities. Um, and I knew from my work with the independent group that there are many different communities out there that we'd be talking to every day through our social media platforms. And I would assume that DCU would be the same. So I guess, like, my, my thing would be, like, you know, let, let us grow this audience um, through through our content, through our stories. Let's just keep adding audience um, to all your social media platforms and, and drive some traffic to your site. And then, you know, you, you'll win then because you'll be able to put out, you know, feeds, posts for marketing or other information out to a larger audience because we're building audience up organically. So, yeah, they, they decided at the time, like, let's, let's, let's go with this. Let, let's give it a go. And thankfully, like, there's so much happening in DCU. Like um, we've been able to grow audience substantially on the social media platforms because there's so much happening. And I, I'm, I'm talking like before COVID, during COVID, there's always something happening and um, that, that appeals to, to different stakeholders. So that's made my job quite easy actually, because I'm not having to go in and drum up support, drum up anything. There's so much, so much stuff happening. I'm literally just plugging it in and people are interested and they're coming so yeah I, I think that that piece that you know uh, stories are, are so central uh, that, I mean the tagline that Matt and I have for Adventures in Advising is sharing stories and, and that's what we ask our our guests to do and that the whole aim of the podcast I do, do think people res- respond to that so I think no matter what area you're in absolutely your mm-hmm. your stakeholders are going to be interested in, in hearing mm-hmm. the stories and I suppose then 
when you know when I, when you think of your current role, can you talk to me? I suppose a little bit about your your current role and and after you got the job, the transition from being a journalist into the the role at um, you know at DCU and into higher education and and maybe some of the skills that you kind of drew on. Yeah. So um, yeah. So like I, I suppose because I was a journalist, like I'm quite naturally a curious a nosy person <laughs> so um you know it was great coming into GC because there was so much happening in terms of events for research or events for, for students like maybe some scholarship events or maybe a student recruitment campaign and it kind of just let me like kind of you know I, I jump like I, I could jump in and, and ask questions and and get stuff moving and stuff like that so like the, the journalism thing really did help because I'm naturally a curious person um to me there was so much happening in GC I was like well why can't we just get all this out there and get, and get some more interest going and stuff like that so that that was one thing in terms of the transition like from moving from um a news organization into higher ed like yeah it was it, not difficult it was definitely more it took a while to get used to and I mean that in the best possible way I don't think I fully appreciated how layered higher education is um you know I I don't like you know um it wasn't really till I came in and took a look under the bonnet that I saw there's just so many things happening you know so you have student recruitment you have the student experience you have your international you have your domestic and then you have this whole other thing with research um and you know there's so many departments and units you know all these different research centers all these other departments and units like it's it's literally like it's it's almost like a mini city uh, I mean there's 18 and a half thousand students in, in GCU like that's that's a population that's bigger than the, the town of Tullamore and County Offaly you know so like there's just so, so I don't think I really fully appreciated it until I got it I obviously I knew what, what GCU was about um the other thing I should mention as well is that um, I was an access student in GCU. So um, GCU have the longest running access program in, in Ireland. So, um, and GCU's mission is to transform lives and societies. And through me going on GCU's access program, getting the reduced points, getting onto the journalism course, like I can truly say, well, education transformed my life. And um, so I absolutely subscribe to everything that DC say they're going to do in their mission statement. And that's something that I want to, to help put out there and, you know, for people to know, and also for other people's lives to be transformed through education as well. Um, so that, that, that's, that's it. I hope that answers your question. I probably rambled on a bit there. If you want to, if you want to come back on something there too. No, I think it's really interesting. I think for, for listeners, um, you know, who are outside of Ireland, uh, Access is, is, is a really wonderful program that offers pathways into higher education for people from kind of um, socioeconomically disadvantaged yeah. backgrounds. And it, it, as you said, like the, 
it kind of highlights the power of education, which is one of the reasons, again, that we do this podcast is it does transform lives and it does transform um, societies. And so, you know, you are uh, a walking embodiment of that, as you say, and it's it's interesting, you know, the the layers that you you talk about that that exist. And many of our listeners would have experienced that because they might be working as advisors or student support professionals or, or working in a particular department or area. But then obviously you have this decentralized kind of services and, and, and the, you working in, in centralized communications. Mm-hmm. So going back, I suppose, to your your bio and, and we're talking about like one of the, the aspects of your role is about growing its audience and engagement mm-hmm. with various stakeholders and community. How do you go about doing that, given the you know competing demand and, and the different considerations that you have to consider with the different stakeholders? Yeah, it's, 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 there's no, like, there's no secret, there's no secret sauce, there's no, it takes time, you know, I, I'll, I'll come back to the wider answer now, but like, I've, I've done a few workshops um, in DCU and, and outside DCU and, and people have talked to me about social media, so I'm not, by the way, I'm not an expert, I'm just, I, they come to me because I work in social media, I work in the digital online environment and it's always changing and, you'll never ever be on top of it because if if you think you are you'll be the rug will be pulled out from your feet the next day like it, it constantly evolves you, you have to you have to keep going but like you know something's like saying to me like okay listen I, I, like i have this twitter account trying to be for themselves for their own profile or for department in it i'm like how do i engage what do i need and i like saying like listen <laughs> i hate to say this to you but it takes time like it actually takes a lot of time um it's it's not a and column i think you know this as well because you're quite active on social media um and in, in your podcast as well like it's kind of like it, it doesn't work nine to five monday to friday like you know you need to be checking in, in the evening you need to be checking in the weekends you need to be reacting you need to be um, you know, engage in, in current affairs and listen to current affairs and keeping on top of current affairs. So it, it just if if you're if you're running like the main account, so if you're running the account for your department or your unit, like it just it just takes time. You have to give it time. You have to give it some time in the evening. Not lots of time, but you do have to check it you know, a few times during the day and at weekends and, and stuff like that. Um, I think like back to your question about how you keep all the various stakeholders happy and how you grow audience. Like there are a few things that, that we did. Um, so for example, like with the Instagram, I'll come back to Instagram because I think that's a whole other piece. Um, but like we just we just started using, like, you know, they have these wonderful marketing images on it, but we're just like, listen, let's just go out and take pictures on, on our phone and, and, and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> I think with Instagram, they don't want it to be too slick. They they want it to be, you know, you, you can put stuff that you've taken on your phone and you can do, you can do whatever. Um, and then Insta stories, which I'll come back to in a while, like I think that to me has been a game changer as well. Um, Twitter, like one thing that we did offer as a central comms, uh, central services, like we, we offered, not help, we offered support for events. So if you had like a student related event or if you had, a research related event or let's just say there's this wonderful um unit in dc called the age friendly um university like if they had something on so let's just say like a minister's launching something or you're launching something or there's a launch research paper with special guests like we just say listen we're like we, we'll obviously promote this for you 
on social media and we'll publish a story for you on the, web, on the website, like let, letting people know that this is happening and so on. And that kind of works hand in glove with the traditional communications who put out the press release, which we'll actually use as a web story and um, contact all traditional media. They'll, they'll do all that stuff. Um, so we work hand in glove with that. Like we're building momentum all the time on, on Twitter. Like it depends what kind of event it is. Maybe we'll go Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn or maybe just Twitter and LinkedIn or maybe just Twitter. It just, it just depends. Um, and then for the when the event's actually taking place, like we actually do live stuff. Um, when I say live stuff, sorry, that sounds very generic, but it's kind of like like if it's a research event, like I'm I'm live tweeting, like so I'm in the room and I'm there at my phone. I'm just live tweeting as people are talking. Um, we'll take a bit of video that's live. We'll do photographs, and then what what we ask people, what we ask the event owners to do is like you know tell them what your hashtag is at the very start. So we're moving that hashtag along and then like other stakeholders or the guests in the room are, are tweeting and we're liking and we're engaging and we're retweeting and stuff like that and we'll probably do all that on the kind of the event owners um, twitter account but then we'll be retweeting off the main account so their account is getting some exposure on our account and that's that's the way it works it's a kind of live tweeting the event putting up some live posts on other platforms and then after the event is over and um, again we work with the comms office they have a release ready to go that's published on the website and we post that on um we post that on our so we post that on our platforms as well and then pictures and visuals are just really important. So we just take as much as we can. If it's a high profile tier one event, a photographer will be hired. We'll be talking to that photographer and they're literally pinging photographs to me on my phone, which I'm putting out on social as well. So that's just one way. Like that's just one way of, of, of and like that has actually been quite successful um, among stakeholders in DCU. Like, you know, that they love seeing the engagement that these live events get and it, you know it gets a few more followers not a massive event of followers but like you know people are aware and also like you know they're they're aware that the event happened as well like because it's kind of captured forever in social or else on the website um other things we do like um yeah like i actually i will talk about instagram now if that's okay um instagram Instagram when I came in and I was kind of guilty of this as well I kind of and I still do I was on maternity leave there and I was joking saying really Instagram helped me parent <laughs> during a, a pandemic I picked up so many tips like Instagram's just amazing when it comes to motherhood and I was like oh my god there's just so many tips I picked up um, and, and it's great for cooking and I, I just assumed Instagram's great for cooking and lifestyle and style and fantastic pictures I didn't truly get that Instagram is also a news and information channel until I came into DCU. And Instagram through Insta Stories has proven to be our most effective channel to communicate with students, particularly undergrad students. And we the, the engagement we had on Insta Stories, especially during COVID, was absolutely massive. Um, so that to me, like we 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 have seen, like we, we did a survey there, um, using the survey on the website. We were actually asking students because like not many students have come to DCU.ie, and um, they might come to go somewhere else, but they were coming a lot more during the pandemic because the library went online, for example. So the library is on DCU.ie, so they were spending more time on DCU.ie than they normally would. Um, but anyway, we were able to capture some of that uh, during the survey we, we did, and they overwhelmingly they told us they were getting their information from instagram their news the latest news information and updates was coming from instagram so that kind of it just confirmed what we already knew um and it's not really the grid that 
that does it. It's it's um it's 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 the Insta stories, um. So they're great. So like things like you know like even little things like um the writing center, maths clinics, and stuff like that. Like we are putting up um for students on the main side. But as I said, like for COVID, um. It, it was great and also like if we had a major announcement take we put it on the grid and that would always do very very well as well mm-hmm. um so again so it's, it's funny we actually doubled um our instagram audience in, in 18 months so it went from ten thousand to almost twenty thousand. um so that was just that's just an example of, of how we built that audience and um, our twitter has gone up by almost 30 percent and again like it's um the Twitter audience is different to Instagram. I, I think Twitter is more research, um, academic. Um, also, that's where you'll find journalists. Like I, I do say this to, to people in workshops. Like when I was, um, I, I don't think this will come as many, much of a surprise to your listeners, but journalists are very, very, very savvy on social media, especially young journalists. And um, if they're looking for experts in particular fields, especially if they're coming to something afresh, the first thing they'll do is they'll put that person's name in Google or Twitter. And that's why I say to people like, listen, if, if you want to get that profile in traditional media, online media, you need to get that profile in Twitter or Google. You need to put yourself out there a bit. And um, so that's just something. But anyway, so that's where journalists, politicians, researchers, academia live. And also anecdotally, we what we believe happens is like, um, when students come into us, like they're on TikTok or Snapchat, a lot of me on Instagram. But then if they're towards their final year, they're we do see them setting up Twitter accounts. I I I'm just saying that anecdotally, like you do see more and more uh final year students on Twitter and definitely with LinkedIn, like we used to laugh and say whenever we had graduation, like we would literally be there for hours just replying to people on LinkedIn. We just noticed that all these new LinkedIn profiles were coming up, they're all following us. And we're literally welcome to the world of LinkedIn, but also say, listen, stay in touch with us. Uh, come to, you know, follow DCU alumni. Here's the LinkedIn here. Um, and then, yeah, the, the LinkedIn, like that's gone off from 75,000 to almost 100,000 in 18 months. Um, so LinkedIn for us, it's very corporate. It's, it's, our, it's, our pla- it's the platform where our most followers, but I don't know whether it's the most engaged platform, but um, we have like, 78,000 alumni on it so three quarters of our audience are alumni so there's something there um so we would put research that we put a lot of postgrad and um, stuff on it if we're looking to promote organic stuff postgrad so we tend to put postgrad profiles and stuff on linkedin um and then facebook like facebook is said yeah so we, we've grown linkedin by putting up content that relates to alumni that relates to postgrad that relates to research again it's not just alumni it's, it's also academia as well and then facebook for me has probably been the most challenging area to grow like i i would say to people like don't ever write off facebook you can't because every time you think it's over they come back so facebook live for example during covid was massive and um, we we did um we did a lot of Facebook lives with the School of Health and Human Performance. They're doing um, kind of half an hour live exercise specials or lots of uh, Q&A specials on, on nutrition and stuff like that during COVID. Um, so kind of Facebook kind of went mental for us again during COVID. And it was great. Much harder to get more followers on it, though. Um, I think Facebook are just putting the pinch on you more and more just to just for you to pay. Um 
Whereas I'd be like, listen, this is research. This is for the good of the community. We shouldn't have to pay for this. But um, our growth there, not as high as, as Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn. Um, but it's still definitely a platform um, that's worth doing. What we have been doing lately is um, Facebook groups. Again, during COVID, like I, as I, I was pregnant, um, and a lot of time where I got my information was on this group called COVID Mammies to Be. And it was a wonderful group. Like if there was no nonsense on it or anything like that. Um, it was just really, really good practical day-to-day information. And um, so my colleague, Claire Bodie Flynn, like she she talked, you know, this Facebook groups is a thing because she was in another group and she's like saying, listen, there's no, it's, it's absolutely fine. So like Claire, if we have specific research or specific campaigns happening, Claire tends to do a bit of research on Facebook and she's trying to see are there specific groups if there's a specific group to this area, you know, I'm going to message them and ask them, would they mind sharing this? So Facebook still is still very, very, very powerful. Um, and it's still something that is worth it. And if you actually get it right, it's worth it. It really is worth it. Um, but we, we also call it the parent platform as well. So I, when I'm on Facebook, I often, especially when I put something up that's student related, you'll often see mums tagging their kids or their nieces and nephews or grands tagging their grandkids who never use Facebook but it's there anyway um so yeah so it's it's different channels and um different voices and different events and um the the live stuff I think is is one way of of building audience um the other stuff as well is just just keep on top of current affairs and then recognizing if a piece of research comes out how that dovetails with some topic that's been in the news or talked about lately I know it's a very rambling answer column I'm sorry <laughs> you might want to go back and edit this but I hope I'm answering some of your questions no yeah it, you are and I think it'll be interesting for listeners just the way in which even the central comms team kind of looks and says Facebook like as you, as you dubbed it the parent platform so that's the way in which we approach that and you have a different approach for Instagram and in, Insta stories and a different approach for for Twitter so it's probably just you know coming up with a plan for for each of the yeah platforms. like if we're if we're like if we're going to so for example like um for the onboarding and orientation in august and september instagram is going to be the most important platform and um, that'll be followed by twitter but twitter is more for postgrad and um, probably international it's funny international still use facebook a lot like we, we get more queries for international students on Facebook than we do on any other platform. I don't know why that is, but but that, that's what it is. Um, but Facebook, like we would check. So again, that would be quite important for us in terms of international students. But also like if we are looking for students to download the Safe Zone app, for example, on DCS, that's an app that um, it's really just used to keep everyone kind of safe on, on campus. Um, then we would just say on Facebook, do you know someone who's going to Facebook? had a look at the safe zone app <laughs> maybe you could recommend it you know and um we would we would see a little bump then um and after that like um you know parents and guardians like they like to know what's happening in, in dcu or in university in general so i know for like clubs and socks week um that tends to happen i think in the second week of, of the first semester like we would put that up on facebook as well um just to say like you know so they do like to know what is happening um in DC probably because I know my dad like um yeah my dad didn't have Facebook at the time like but 
he'd, he'd hear, you know, either I would tell him or he'd read it somewhere or a friend told him or something like that. Like, and he'd be mad to talk about it then when I go home because he just thought the whole world of university was fascinating. So I just think like some parents do have, and, and guardians and, and other relatives, siblings, they do have some interest as to what's happening in university. But yeah, I think like one of the things I did say when I came into GCU is like, a different voice is required for different platforms so it can't be a case of you just like okay there's a perfect tweet so i'm gonna copy and paste that and put it into instagram and copy and paste and put it to linkedin and copy and paste it. it it's not there's different audiences on different platforms and you need to tailor that content to that audience and also whatever event you're doing like it's it's very rare that you'd have an event that would suit all platforms i think you know for me probably a tier one event would probably you know we put it out on all platforms but like other events like you know a, a lot of like research events i do would be primarily twitter and linkedin maybe a bit of facebook um but not necessarily instagram mm-hmm. um you know so i said like for orientation and, and, and onboarding like instagram is instagram for us would be that's where all the information be going um and facebook and 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 twitter but not less like the linkedin i won't be putting that up on linkedin because i'm kind of like well we have all our alumni there and we have this audience here like they like specific content they're not really going to care what's happening in orientation dc not in a bad way but it's not really going to add to their day and they won't want to see that and if there are postgraduate students there in in linkedin they'll get that information on another platform anyway so you know so for example so we won't be using linkedin for, for orientation or onboarding and um, but the other three platforms we will use mm-hmm. so yeah and i think that's the thing and it's, it may well be that for listeners i mean our listeners are, are kind of all over the the globe so maybe that in in different places different platforms work in different ways so it's probably about looking at for your own institution how the different platforms work for you and and then utilizing it in that in that way I, I suppose I'm conscious as well that a lot of our listeners, they work in, in student facing roles, but they may also, you know, and, you know, have a, a either have a digital comms remit or, you know, if you're in a student facing role, certainly I would be aware of it from working with international students, you kind of have to have a, a digital comms remit. Would you have any advice for for those listeners just you know in in terms of just other things that you think would be useful or or things that they could look to to utilize um well probably just like like practical things i mean like i imagine everyone has a hootsuite or a sprout or tweet deck that is is quite like you know what like i think um social media like the likes of twitter and, and facebook and instagram they don't want us using um schedulers like hootsuite or sprout they want us they want all our content in there <laughs> they, they, they don't want us going anywhere else and you're kind of punished for it like you're not going to get the same engagement and um, but like like i you know i i, I remember um, i was talking to my colleague claire and she was like we're doing all this stuff on instagram why do we need to put somebody on Twitter when it's not that audience and kind of there because you're letting your colleagues know what's happening and you're letting so I just say like yeah like definitely is into if, you, if you're student facing yes Instagram Insta stories grid the way to go but also use your Twitter as well just to let people know your colleagues and you know your peers like get like we're, we're doing this for students and maybe if you're tutoring or if you're teaching students say you might actually let them know so like Twitter is great for that um another thing as well like um when I came in, I 
I'll go back to Hootsuite Square now. The reason I bring that up is, so I think a lot of people might just tweet stuff once and that's it. When I was in the Indo and I brought it to DCU, we'd always tweet stuff three times because people, they don't always see it and Twitter's just this really, really busy place. So, you know, I put out the original tweet on Twitter itself and then I, while I'm there, I'd copy and paste it into the likes of Sprout or Hootsuite and just schedule it for two days time and two days again um, and actually that has been quite effective um, it was quite effective for us in the Indo it's been quite effective for us in DCU because as I said like Twitter's just this mad 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 place um, and it's a very good chance that it's a very good chance that people won't see that one tweet that you've posted so you know we're like saying like listen put it out as so in case you missed it um, I think people appreciate it and I put it out at different times um, I'd advise people have a look have a look at the back end of your platforms and see what times are the busiest times. So like, for example, um, Instagram for us, like it doesn't really peak until seven, eight, 9 PM at night. Facebook, our busiest time is 9 PM. Um, and then Twitter, like LinkedIn, like your audience is really peaks between nine to 11 AM. Tuesday and Wednesdays are our busiest day on LinkedIn. And then Twitter is, it's it's busy all day, but like this, it this kind of peaks and troughs. So I guess like you know, if if most of your audience on Instagram isn't coming isn't coming on until eight pm or nine pm, it seems to be crying shame that you have nothing there at eight pm or nine pm. So you know, um, I'd, I'd say look at that. Um, and so face so Facebook for example, we don't schedule anything on Facebook until the evenings, unless there's an important announcement that has to be that has to be posted live. Um, so you know we, we do that and like we do all that within Facebook so we schedule content for Facebook within Facebook and then that way you're not punished for it and then you can you can do it the same with Instagram although you can't do it Insta stories you have to still put everyone knows you have to still put Insta stories on your phone there's no way around that um, so yeah like that, that that's like I'd advise people just have a look at the back end and see I'm sure people are doing it anyway but as I said like it, it would seem a bit bonkers to me that your busiest time would be 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. and there's no post there at that time so as I said I know it's outside of office hours and stuff like that but I do think it's worth your while and I do think in terms of engagement and audience growth it's something worth looking at. Yeah I I, I think it's a really important point because it's something that isn't always maybe considered in terms of the timing and, and I think obviously if if you have things on in the evening or it's not possible to post there are ways you know for most of the platforms that you can schedule it i'm just wondering and i, and I don't know if there if there is a way around this but in in terms of what you said about twitter um it makes a lot of sense that you post three times i'm just wondering in terms of say the insta stories that you know you find that the students really engage with they if do you put those up more than more than once be or like is it just you know that the students are, are you find that they're going to have other ways of getting that information it would depend on what it is like instagram's a tough um it's i think it's a tough platform i think it's it's tougher to hold on to the audience there i think you're going to get more of a churn on instagram than you will on other platforms i think people are very quick to drop you if so you know it's you don't want to bombard them with like, even though Insta stories is great, you don't want to bombard them with content all the time. So like, for example, if it's a writing clinic, um, yes, we would, we would post that. We would post that maybe three or four times during the week, but I don't think students would mind that because there's, 
there's something in it for them. Um, you know, but like other stuff, like, you know, you just, it, it depends on the post, like, but it's, it's kind of like, I just, I'm very conscious that this is a tough platform for us to, to hold onto an audience for. Um, so it, it's kind of like, you know, it, it depends on the nature of the content and whether students will get value from it, if that makes it, what, what's in it for them. So, you know, a competition, like I would absolutely, especially at orientation week, like in order to get more um more new students following us like i'll absolutely put that competition on the grid at the start of the week and i'll put up an insta story every single day for that week but there's a competition and there's stuff and uh, for students to win so that that today uh, i don't think that's going to turn people off um so yeah there's just just stuff but yeah it, it depends on on the post i think and it depends on whether there's something of value for, for the students there. Yeah, I, I think the value is the big part because I think mm -hmm. sometimes I'll, I'll hear people say, oh, students don't check emails. And I say, well, firstly, that's not a student thing. That's just all of us because we get so many emails in and, and, and yeah. you scan, you, you look and you see, is that something I need to click on? Is that something I, I need to respond to? But whereas if it's if it's something really important, like if I send an e email out about immigration, that isn't my news, but it's relevant to them. The click through rate is massive. So they, they yeah. definitely I, I think whatever platform you're using, be it email or be it a social platform, thinking about the value and, and in, is this a, a value add for students is really, really important, uh, I, I would say. One of the other things I suppose I'm just curious, um, Jane, uh, is, you know, we, we, we've talked about there is kind of so much happening in, in a university context, right? You have the research mm -hmm. breakthroughs, you have mm -hmm. partnerships, you have like students mm -hmm. doing brilliant things, loads of student successes, be it even in terms of athletics or academics or yeah. just creating these incredible social entrepreneurships, um, mm -hmm. these innovations. As like a central comms unit, how do you go about kind of creating that university community, but without losing the individual stories? Because I know maybe sometimes, and, 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 and is it the case that kind of departments feel an ownership because it came from their department or, or, or how do you approach that? Yeah, like all all departments, like all departments own the content. Like all we're all we're doing, like we're we're providing a service to them, and, and we're amplifying what they're giving us. You know, like we we don't own that content; they own that content. They own those stories. So they, you know, and like I'm always delighted when, you know, a department unit comes to me and asks me for the analytics. So the analytics of the website story or the analytics of their engagement, and they put it in their report and they send it to. It. So that that gives me a buzz because I I I can see that, you know that this stuff really, really matters to them. Um, I think you have to be, like, in order, like, you don't want to annoy your followers. Um, so you don't want to be bombarding them with content all the time. Um, and you don't want to turn people off. So I, I, timing is important. Um, so like, for example, like September for us is going to be really busy with onboarding and orientation. And I've, I've, I was talking, I have a meeting with the comms team every week, um, which is held by our director and she brings us all together. And I'm just like saying to them, like, I said, like, listen, like that air, that time is going to be really, really, really busy for us. Um, in terms of onboarding and orientation, if somebody comes to you looking for a search to be promoted in September, I would strongly urge you to move them to another time. Um, 
you know, because their content is going to get lost in the maelstrom of, of everything that's happening at, at that time. So, you know, so they, they're, they're aware of that. Um, so yeah, the timing is, 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 is very important. So like, I remember um, during COVID, DC got a, was doing a lot of research. They said this COVID-19 research innovation, that there was so much happening. And um, there were so many appeals going out, but not just from DC, from everyone. Um, and they're looking for people to take place, take part in service. And we were just like saying to research, listen, like, let's not put out all these surveys together. Can we, can we drift them out um, over the next couple of months? And thankfully they were, they were receptive to that. And that was great. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of knowing what content goes on what platform and the timing is everything and the timing is not just to the audience but also to the owner of that content because at the end of the day like particularly with research and particularly with student success stories and particularly with like any innovation piece whether it be you know young entrepreneurs in in the business school or um, in the research community like you know you, you want them to get the best bite that they can you know, you don't want to just put them out at any any time. Like you, you want their posts to be successful. You want them to get that reach. So it's kind of on you as well to say, like, listen, I think this is the right time. But at the same time, I'm trying to get as quick as you can. But let me just bring you through as to why. So and then also as well, like you don't want to be bombarding your community with stuff as well. And that's where that piece comes in as well about knowing which which content should go on which platform there's there's very rarely a piece that goes on all, all four platforms and um, you know so you don't want to annoy your facebook audience by putting something that really is linkedin and not facebook and you don't want to put something on your instagram that really is more twitter than instagram and um, so yeah it's just it's knowing your audience it's knowing your platform and it's knowing what goes where and when it goes out I, I think probably what I'm hearing is planning and collaboration are probably two of the key ingredients. Planning is, yeah, planning is really, really important. And I'd say like for each big campaign, and I'm talking about organic, by the way, I'm not talking about marketing, but like for orientation, we're like, get, get, just start a calendar. Just, just do your own calendar for each campaign. Or maybe the event owner will have their own, calendar anyway so you can just input into that calendar with, with the post that you're doing but yeah planning and collaboration is is absolutely huge and like what i love about dcu is um you know when an event is happening or a campaign is happening and like the the, the event owners tend to bring everyone to the table so it's digital comms it's comms it's marketing it's student recruitment it's it's student support it's, it's everyone and we're all talking there we're all like right what can we what can we do and everyone's coming together and they're all putting their input in and, and, and stuff like that so yeah but the other arm has to the, the left arm has to know what the sorry the left arm has to know what the right hand is doing but planning and collaboration if you if you don't have planning and collaboration it's it's problematic <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose, um, Jane, just as we wind down for listeners who um, want to get in touch with you or kind of, um, you know, get get some more ideas or, or bounce something off you. Is there a, a way that's best for them to, to get in touch? Yeah, listen, as you know yourself, I'm always on, on Twitter. So I'm at... Actually, I think it's at Jane underscore. I can't even remember my own Twitter. I am actually on Twitter. I know it doesn't sound like I am, but um, hang on a second. It's at Jane underscore last. Um, let me just double check that. Yeah, at Jane underscore last. And um, yeah, like if you, you just DM me there, um, 
I, I tend to, that's probably my, I'm also LinkedIn as well. So if people want to, um, but like Twitter is what I'm, my own personal Twitter is what I'm on every day anyway. So Okay, that is, um, that is really, really useful. And uh, I think Liz, there'll be plenty that listeners will have taken away from this to kind of get that peek behind the curtain into central communications and the way in which, you know, you, you approach um the the kind of social media strategy has been really useful so just want to say jane last thanks for taking the time to join me today thanks for having me colin it was lovely Thanks to Jane for taking the time to offer insights into digital communications within higher ed and how she approaches each platform in a different manner that's it for this episode we hope you enjoyed and learned a lot Keep up to date by subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and pretty much all podcast platforms. And also follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Thank you for joining us today. And as always, keep advising. Don't want a